This episode of the Noted Bitcoin podcast is a little different than usual. I appeared on three different podcasts and wanted to, first of all, share it with the Noted uh, audience, as well as make sure you guys go and subscribe to these three other podcasts because they have excellent guests on as well. So the first podcast that I'll be rebroadcasting in this episode is What Bitcoin Did with Peter McCormick. And I was on episode number 28 there. The uh, link to the episode will be in the show notes. Uh, we recorded this on, or it was released on August 4th, 2018. Uh, we talk about Bitcoin maximalism, altcoins, hyper-Bitcoinization. The episode after that is Bottom Shelf Bitcoin with Josh. We released that on August 7th. And there, the focus was on Bitcoin's governance and social signaling. So that's episode number 24, Bottom Shelf Bitcoin. Go subscribe. And lastly, uh, I was on Stefan Levera's podcast twice, uh, number three and number 11. Uh, go subscribe to the Stefan Levera podcast. Uh, these were released uh, July 29th and August 12th. Again, links in the show notes. Uh, we discuss the Bitcoin investment theses and Bitcoin's decentralized governance. Uh, but first, we're going to start off with a clip from Hans Hermann Hoppe, who delivered a series of lectures in 2004. Uh, and this clip is from his lecture on money and monetary integration. I think that you'll find it very interesting in, in, in the context of a world where Bitcoin did not exist. This is four years before Bitcoin's white paper was released. If you enjoy the Noted Podcast, if you find that our content is bringing value to your ears, uh, join our new Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash noted, N-O-D-E-D, uh, and subscribe, support the show, so that we keep blasting out this uh, Bitcoin propaganda. Enjoy the shows. We can say roughly that by the mid-19th century, the entire world was became known to mankind. And it is not an accident then that around this time also what emerges is for the first time a clear-cut tendency for one or two commodity monies to outcompete everything else. That is, at the end of the 19th century, we have then an international gold standard uh, developing. Uh, for a while there was competition between uh, gold and silver. There were certain areas that preferred silver. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, before 1908, China and Persia and a few South American countries still used silver. But by 1900, except for these exceptions, the rest of the world was on a gold standard. Uh, precisely what one would predict, so to speak, based on economic theory, a, ten a tendency towards a one-world commodity money coming into existence. Of course, there is always some sort of interference and messing up by governments in, in this process, and we have not talked about them yet so far. The entire reconstruction that I give is 
a reconstruction of what would happen, so to speak, without any government interference. Uh, this problem of government interference will occupy us only in later lectures. And then we can say that from 1914 on, where we have probably reached the most complete economic integration in, in human history, the most encompassing economic integration, most intensive division of labor, uh, including the entire globe on. From 1914 on, disintegration has set in again. Most visibly, of course, documented by the fact that we currently not only do not have an international, have no longer an international commodity money, we have instead a large variety of national freely fluctuating paper currencies that is a regression toward, toward a situation that we might consider to be partial, partial barter again. That is something that we had already overcome in history and uh, have gone back to a situation that we had already successfully solved, so to speak. And you see, of course, currently, again, under a paper money regime, which requires, of course, the existence of governments. I have to jump ahead here for a moment, at least. Under a paper money regime, you can see, however, again, the same tendency at work that you saw as a natural tendency uh, with the commodity money that is uh, trying to create a worldwide used paper currency to bring such a thing into uh, existence. As you see, we see attempts of the European monetary integration, for instance, so that we currently have only three major currency blocks, so to speak, the euro on the one hand, the dollar on the other, and the yen as the third one. All the other ones don't count for much because very little trade is conducted uh, in other currencies besides, uh, besides these. That might change, of course, uh, one day with, with China opening up uh, uh, completely. But as you, as you have uh, certainly heard, there exist powerful international organizations that promote the idea of a one-world central bank issuing a one-world paper currency and the argument that they use for this, um, the kernel of truth in their argument, is of course uh, precisely the same one that I explained here. It is simply advantageous to have just one money because trading becomes easier with just one money instead of a multitude of fluctuating money. The drawback in the current situation is, of course, that this one world paper money uh, will be a money that will be produced and managed by a monopoly institution such as a World Bank and can be inflated at will. And uh, we will likely see, or we would likely see, a larger amount of inflation with such an institution in place than we ever saw in world history before. Uh, allow me this little side remark. If you have a paper money 
then it is actually an advantage to have competing paper monies because uh, the inflationary desires of each individual central bank are, so to speak, curtailed by the non-cooperation of other governments. If country A inflates their paper money more than country B, its currency will fall in the currency market and people will tend to drop this type of money and adopt monies that are more stable. So if you have paper money in effect, which is, as I said, uh, sort of speak, dysfunctional to the very purpose of money in the first place, represents, so to speak, a regression in human development. If you have a paper money in existence, then competing paper monies fluctuating against each other is an advantage over a worldwide produced paper money. But one can have a worldwide used money also that is provided completely independent of governments and that was precisely what we had in, at the end of the 19th century that is an international gold standard or it might as well be a silver standard. Economic theory does not predict whether it will be gold or silver. Economic theory only predicts that there will be a tendency towards one type of money being used on a worldwide scale because it is a function of money to be a facilitator of exchange and of course we can recognize that a money that is used all over the place facilitates exchange more so than any other possible money that exists only in various, uh, in various smaller regions. Hi there, how are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Um, I'm over in Florida and I've forgotten to bring my microphone, so I'm recording this intro straight into the laptop. I, I hope the sound's okay. Um, so this week I've got an interview with Pierre Rochard, co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute, founder of Bitcoin Advisory and the host of the Noded Bitcoin podcast. And if any of you have followed me on Twitter recently, you've seen that I've kind of been going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, trying to understand what I'm missing with maximalism, trying to understand why I've been blocked by a bunch of maximalists and uh, the arguments I seem to get into and why they're happening. So, yeah, I, I've been spending a bit of time going down the rabbit hole. I've been reading Saifedean's book, The Bitcoin Standard, and I've binged on Pierre's podcast itself. I think I listened to all 20, I think it's 20 episodes. I listened to all in about four days. Absolutely fascinating. And kind of confirming a number of uh, questions I had also leaving a few kind of ideas open that I wanted to question Pierre on. I've approached a few people and asked to have them on. I wanted to speak to a few different people who were kind of in the Bitcoin space. <laughs> uh, Pierre said yes. A couple of others said yes. A couple have said no. <laughs> I think I've probably pissed them off. And I've had uh, a couple ignore me. Um, but yes, Pierre has agreed to come on. And I think he's a very good starting point because having 
a podcast himself. He obviously touches on a number of broad subjects with his guests. He's obviously a very smart guy, very uh, knowledgeable with Bitcoin. He has a good, deep understanding of economics. And he's just a very warm person when explaining Bitcoin. So it was great to have him on. It was great to be able to put a number of questions I have to him because I know there are people out there like me who maybe joined the space late, who maybe uh, their first experience of crypto was signing up to Coinbase and seeing Bitcoin and Ethereum, or maybe even later seeing Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash and, and have no bias, who don't understand why there are so many Bitcoin maximalists and what their view is, why they can't be more open-minded to projects. But it is starting to make more sense to me. And I was glad to get Pierre on, and I was glad to go through some of these topics. And I hope it's useful for any of you who've listened to it who are kind of have a few questions maybe yourself. Um, if you can, please do support the show. Um, I know a number of people last week also supported the Ross Albrecht campaign. I've been sharing my latest interview with Lin out. So thank you so much for that. But yeah, if you can support the show, there's a few things you can do. Can you go onto iTunes and leave me a review? Um, they are ticking over. I am getting more and more. Those five-star reviews definitely help with the ranking. So thank you to anyone who's added one of those. You can follow me on social media. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Steam it, Facebook, anywhere. Um, my handle on everything is at what Bitcoin did. And if you have any questions, you need any help, feel free to reach out to me and give me a shout. Feel free to follow me on my website. Go to www.whatbitcoindid.com and you can sign up to the newsletter. And if you want to email me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And please do share the show out with your friends and family. Every time it gets shared out, I see it on Twitter and it really does mean a lot. So, yes, please do that. Okay, on to the interview with Pierre. It's, uh, it's a good interview. I really like this. Have a good listen. If you've got any questions for me, please do email me and also follow Pierre's podcast. I recommend going and listening to that and subscribing. I will, in the show notes, share the ones which I think uh, help me the most in my understanding. Okay, look, I hope you enjoy the show. And yeah, feel free to reach out to me. Hi, Pierre. How are you? Good. How are you, Peter? I'm pretty good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, it's a transitional time for me at the moment. Um, just to give a bit of a background of why I wanted to talk to you, um, I joined, uh, entered what is essentially the crypto space about 18 months ago, and my entry was into Coinbase, and there was Bitcoin and Ethereum. And whilst I'd already heard of Bitcoin, I didn't have any kind of deep knowledge of why one was so much more important than the other. And I've gone through a journey of looking at a lot of crypto, buying altcoins, selling altcoins, making and losing money. But in doing my podcast, I've started to see more and more people block me on Twitter who are Bitcoin maximalists. So I've gone on a bit of a journey to try and understand it, and it's all starting to fall into place. So I thought this would be a good time to talk to you. And I also think there's probably a lot of people like me who, who innocently think there's things okay with altcoins and such. So I would love to talk to you a little bit about Bitcoin maximalism, why it's so important. And uh, thank you also for all your podcasts. They've been very helpful. So what would you say some of the misconceptions are with Bitcoin maximalism and maximalism? Why do you think there is this kind of battleground that exists? Yeah, uh, I think that probably the biggest misconception is that uh, Bitcoin maximalists think that um, that Essentially, it's a difference between a prescriptive, there should only be one uh, coin, versus a descriptive, 
uh, based on our understanding of monetary economics, the outcome will be such that most of the value will accrue to one coin and one coin will be, you know, at the very least, the world reserve currency or uh, even more than that, just uh, the one global money. Um, and of course, there will always be uh, coins on the side, you know, at the margin. And I kind of see it as like a Pareto ratio of 80-20. So I think that like 80% of the value is going to go to Bitcoin and 20% of it is going to go to a mix of different, whether it's like local currencies or um, currencies that have specific uh, utility functions or uh, different uh, marketing and memes around them like Dogecoin. Um, but uh, it, it's and that's just based on my understanding of network economics and monetary economics. It's not at all that um, you know I'm just pumping my bags. Yeah, no, I, I understand that, and I've been working my way through Saferdeen's book as well. And one of the very important sections in that was when he talks about when some countries were based on gold and some were based on silver, and those countries whose economy was based on silver saw mass devaluation of their currency and eventually moved to gold and it feels like there will be a winner takes all scenario with this yeah or at the very least a, a winner take most <laughs> yeah so do you see any value in any other parts of this crypto ecosystem because i am now now i'm coming at it with more of a an objective view i've pretty much been selling off everything and struggling to see any value outside of bitcoin uh, so I think that one of the issues we have in cryptocurrencies is that a lot of these projects essentially uh, are successful at the, at first and then only fail when they try to scale. Um, and so there's kind of a dichotomy, uh, and I, I, I describe it as either uh, failing to scale or scaling to fail. Uh, and so to me, Bitcoin... At the layer one, uh, chose to fail to scale, which is that we're just going to choose to not scale by not increasing the block size limit. Uh, and then I think that Ethereum is a prime example of scaling to fail, which is that we're going to keep trying to scale until this whole thing falls apart. Uh, and we we kind of saw. Uh, on Medium, Stop and Decrypt has some really good articles on the properties of these decentralized networks. And essentially, the more you try to scale, the more centralized a network becomes. And the more centralized it becomes, the more vulnerable it becomes to arbitrary changes that the users can't really uh, resist because they're done by an oligarchy or you know some, some cabal of powerful individuals. Yeah, one of the things I think that's a difficult transition was there are so many different factors to understanding it. There are economic, social, political, um, and I'm not an economist. Actually, I used to work in advertising. You know, I'm not really political. Uh, I find the Bitcoin project and crypto really interesting. But the the knowledge required to take you from, um, especially if you've come into cryptocurrencies maybe in the last year or two, the, the knowledge you have to have to to get the full understanding is it's, it's quite extensive. Do you not feel, therefore, it is natural for many people to, to, to float to altcoins and not really understand it? Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I, I have this uh, tremendous privilege in the sense that I my background before Bitcoin was accounting and monetary economics. 
Um, and I had started reading about monetary economics when I was a junior in high school in like 2006, and specifically from kind of the Austrian perspective. But I've also read quite a bit from uh, neoclassical and Keynesian and all these different uh, schools of thought on monetary economics. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the, the mindset I had uh, coming into Bitcoin, uh, which at the time it was only Bitcoin. Uh, and then I learned about Litecoin and I was immediately skeptical about Litecoin. So uh, I've been a uh, Bitcoin maximalist since uh, day zero of uh, getting involved. But um, I think that the mindset that people come to crypto with uh, – certainly dramatically impacts their analysis of the investment opportunity and also you know where they want to focus their time uh, to be. So there's lots of people who came to crypto from a, a trading background. And so they're very focused on doing technical analysis of charts and uh, doing day trading and uh, things like that. So you know, they're on BitMEX doing 100x leverage and having a great time. So, I, yeah, I, I agree that uh, one's background heavily influences it. And most people don't have a background in monetary economics or in economics at all. Um, and so then it just becomes a, a marketing thing of, you know, you log on to Coinbase, as you were saying, and uh, you look at these different logos. You know, it, might, it might even just come down to the branding uh, that someone decides to buy one uh, coin and not the other. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that there's just because it's decentralized, there's resources all over the place. Uh, often they contradict each other. And it's very hard to learn the ground truth of what's going on with these different networks and uh, which ones have the potential to accrue value in the future and which ones are just pump and dumps. That's very true. And, and also, it can be a very unforgiving place at times. Um, so I made the decision to go out to Japan and interview Roger Veer because I wanted, from my perspective, to understand where he was coming from. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not a buyer or a holder of Bitcoin Cash. I sold them immediately. But I wanted to understand from my perspective uh, as somebody trying to, to enter the space. And I took a lot of flack for that and, you know, quite abusive at times as well. I understand it now, but I, I still don't regret the decision. Yes. Yeah, does that yeah, make sense? for sure. Uh, I think it's unfair, actually, uh, how much flack you got. Uh, and in fact, it, it, I think it's unfair um, but uh, that a anyone who, who comes into crypto today and starts, uh, you know, a asking completely innocent questions that aren't motivated at all by uh, some sort of political or, uh, you know, whatever it may be, the, the, the issue is that a lot of people who have been in Bitcoin, and I've I've only been around since like early 2013, and now I'm considered to be like an old person here. But really, when I joined, like the people who'd been around since 2010, 2011 were the old people, and um, everyone since 2011 has heard all of the arguments, uh, you know, for and against uh, increasing the block size limit. And it's kind of it has been a perennial debate. And um, 
So on some level, people who've been around for a while uh, just don't have the patience anymore to discuss the topic because they've, uh, it's beating a dead horse. And so what's unfair is that when new people come in, they, they don't have this whole history and they, they don't uh, know, you know all the arguments. So it's completely normal for them to want to discuss it. Um, but people who've been around for a while and who understand that this is like Protestants versus Catholics and don't want to like, they don't have any patience for it. And uh, I think that it leads to a lot of uh, unnecessary acrimony when really it's just people trying to learn. Yeah, and that's that's true, actually, because I think when you first start looking at the block size debate, it's very easy to be swung back and forth because you'll hear an argument for bigger blocks and you'll say, oh, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, what the fuck's wrong with this? And then you'll hear a counter argument. Oh, yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. And I think it's probably taken me a year to fully understand why I just I personally would not support bigger blocks. I mean, at one point I thought, well, maybe a marginal go to a two megabyte thing wouldn't have been a bad problem. But then I, I heard the debate between Jameson Lopp and Roger Veer and the way Jameson defended block size was, again, really important. But I think it's very easy to be swung both sides. But for new people entering the space, it's very hard to find a solid, impartial argument and you have to almost you've got to throw yourself into a very intolerant place yeah and get beaten around a bit yeah and and maybe it's a it's a good um uh introduction to crypto or a good hazing uh to th- throw yourself into the debate of the block size limit and uh just it's it's a great way to grow a thicker skin um and uh, uh, ultimately though at this point I think that it's we're in a healthier position now that we've had the Bitcoin Cash hard fork because before it was like really a family feud, you know, within the family. And now we've had the divorce and they can live in their separate houses and uh you know, there's still a lot of acrimony, but it's uh it's 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 a little healthier, I think. Yeah, and another thing that I've also something I question with myself is whilst um maximalist hate altcoins generally shit coins i also and i'm also started to hate them i also think they've probably had a net benefit for bitcoin for a number of reasons the exchanges have given a use case the opportunity to make money has, has increased exposure and i also went to a jimmy song um meetup on anti-fragility and i i for me it's they also increase bitcoin anti-fragility so as much as they're hated there's this converse or perverse thing where I think they've ultimately benefited Bitcoin. Yeah, and they're also just inevitable. I think that the the thing about altcoins is that Bitcoin can only go up in price uh, uh, by a certain amount. Like, and it's kind of unrealistic to think that well, without altcoins, Bitcoin would be you know uh, twice as valuable because all of that capital would have gone into Bitcoin. I don't think it would have. Um, it's very uh I think that Bitcoin's price is very psychological and it would be very hard for the price to have gone to like forty thousand dollars instead of uh, eighteen thousand um, dollars and so all of that capital flowing into the space uh, essentially overflows from Bitcoin into other marginal product projects and you know we we can criticize those projects but uh, they they do perform an important function of absorbing a bunch of excess capital that is just uh, incapable of being absorbed into Bitcoin. Um, and then the other thing too is that uh, they I, I I see that each each of these different altcoins um, it 
uh, it appeals to a different psychology and a different mindset of someone coming in. And so to me, they're all coming into the same building through different doors. And now, granted, uh, my favorite door is the Bitcoin door. Uh, but ultimately, they, they do end up um, in Bitcoin in the sense that if someone's an altcoin aficionado and they're always, you know, they're, they're looking through uh, crypto uh, coin market cap and trying to find, you know, what's going to be the next pump and dump and all this. Or, or they're, they're, they're reading white papers and doing fundamental research to figure out what's going to be the next big uh, crypto. Um, they all have a position in Bitcoin or should, right? It, it would be bizarre to me if, if someone has a portfolio of crypto that has a 0% allocation to Bitcoin. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, most of these people own Bitcoins anyway. Uh, and what they do uh, with the rest of their portfolio is it's kind of their own business. And, and I see it as inevitable that they uh, are A, going to be in altcoins and B, going to be in Bitcoin. It's, yeah, and it's funny because I, I almost feel I've come to this kind of full circle position. I now actually think the entire situation environment is perfect in that in some ways the altcoins, have, like we've discussed, have been great for Bitcoin. But actually having different types of uh, uh, Bitcoin maximalists is also great. Having you know open-minded, tolerant people who will talk to you is great. But also having the kind of extreme intolerant types are also actually it's great because – they will force like someone like me to rethink my my whole position and actually reconsider it. Um, another area I wanted to explore with you, hyper-Bitcoinization. You talk about that like it's an inevitability, yeah. which I think is pretty cool. And also, I once read a book called uh, Engines That Move Markets. I don't know if you know the book. Yeah. But it talks about the big changes which have changed society, um, so railways, electricity, oil, telephones, internet. And I can almost see in the future, an additional chapter being Bitcoin. Why, for you, isn't it, is it an inevitability? Yeah, so um, hyper-Bitcoinization is just a, a, a funny word to describe Bitcoin, essentially replacing all of the uh, government fiat currencies that we're currently using as money. Um, and I see it as an inevitability because of, uh, well... So there's a number of things. Uh, the, the first phenomenon to really describe is a speculative attack. And this actually, this, this phrase uh, was coined by um, Paul Krugman, of all people. But he was using it to describe what was ha happening to currencies in Southeast Asia during the 90s. And basically what happens is uh, with a... Uh, money that is weak, that is that the government or the central bank is printing more of it than they should, um, it's going to be decreasing in value versus other monies. And with a fractional reserve banking system, uh, it becomes a very profitable trade for traders to borrow in that weak currency and then sell that weak currency for a stronger currency. Uh, and that process of borrowing the weak currency actually creates more of it because in a fractional reserve banking system, uh, when banks lend out money, they're actually creating new money. Uh, they're not just lending out existing money. And so that actually further weakens the weak money and you have a, a negative feedback loop there. Um, and then the speculator can, uh, as the value continues to uh, diverge between the strong money and the weak money, the speculator can sell his position in the strong money and repay 
his uh, loan, which was denominated in the weak one. And so anyway, I, I hope that the audience followed along with that. But uh, basically what, what this causes is that the the weak money has to tighten its monetary policy dramatically. And so uh, we actually, we saw a speculative attack. Uh, George Soros famously did one on the British pound when it was trying to join uh, the European Monetary Union. Um, And then I would argue that there was a speculative attack against the U.S. dollar in the late 70s uh, with gold. And so the uh, value of gold dramatically increased because it was, in this scenario, the strong money. Um, and ultimately, it was defeated by Paul Volcker, who uh, tightened the dollar's monetary policy and had money supply targeting uh, and interest rates skyrocketed to 20 percent. So that's how a government stops a speculative attack is by tightening the monetary policy and, make, and strengthening their currency. Um, so I think that Bitcoin is going to do speculative attacks against fiat currencies. And the only way fiat currencies are going to be able to defend themselves is by tightening their monetary policy. And how much you have to tighten your monetary policy is a function of how strong the, the strong currency is that you're competing against. And so with gold, it was like, okay, gold, gold, if you think about it, as the price of gold goes up, as its value goes up, it becomes economical for miners to go out and mine more gold. And so the production rate of gold increases uh, to, to, to cope with this demand. Bitcoin has a difficulty adjustment every two weeks such that uh, the Bitcoin miners during a bull market can't just start printing more Bitcoins, right? Uh, so there, there's a fixed every 10 minutes, they're going to create 12.5 and then 6.25 Bitcoins with the next happening, et cetera. Um, and there's nothing that they can do about that. And so that, that makes it so that there's a much stronger supply function on the other end, which means that to fight off a speculative attack uh, being uh, propelled by Bitcoin, you'd have to tighten your monetary policy much more than you have to with gold. And I don't know that the financial system would be uh, strong enough to, uh, to survive such a tightening. And I don't know that there would be the political will to even do it. Uh, And so I think that what will end up happening is kind of unknowable at this point. But the inevitable result in my mind would be that Bitcoin would be replacing a fiat currency um, one by one around the world as it performs these speculative attacks on them. Uh, And that's kind of why I see full currency substitution or hyper-Bitcoinization as inevitable. Do you see uh, a country like Venezuela as being the most likely to migrate to Bitcoin as its primary currency? Yeah, so uh, plausibly, I think that the the problem right now is that we're too early in the sense that I think that uh, Bitcoin's um, Bitcoin's market depth, its liquidity needs to increase more before uh, this becomes a realistic scenario. And a big part of that is having very good exchanges that are good fiat on and off ramps so that speculators can be uh, accumulating and dumping uh, Bitcoins easily. 
And so it actually, it's very hard, for example, in Venezuela, they have like currency controls. So it's very hard to buy and sell Bitcoins there. Um, they do have like black markets, but black markets inevitably are very illiquid uh, because, you know, they don't have like a centralized order book. Um, and the other thing, too, is uh, the way they get their Bitcoins in Venezuela is by mining them. Uh, and so they uh, use their cheap electricity to acquire them. So... Um, and maybe we'll see a marginal adoption of uh, Bitcoins in Venezuela, but I don't see them being as the the first uh, speculative attack uh, vector. I've seen, I'm not sure if you've seen it, there is a project by one guy who's looking to airdrop Bitcoin across Venezuela. I mean, which comes with lots of problems, yeah, but it's kind of interesting. It's, it's interesting. Um, I'm skeptical of those because I just think that people, people assign value to things based on how they acquired it to an extent. So if you give something away for free, I think people assign a value of zero to it and just want to get rid of it. And so um, I, I'm skeptical of that. Uh, now, maybe it's the case that 90% of people assign a value of zero to it, but that 10% uh, really does their research and realizes that, hey, this is uh, a gift from heaven. And they... Uh, and they become evangelists, and eventually, you know, they are uh, causing hyper Bitcoinization in their country. One of the things that I find difficult coming from—I've come from a background where my my political view is there's a left, there's a right. I don't really know much about economics, um, and I worked in advertising for twenty years. And I found the longer I've been in Bitcoin, the less I start shouting my opinion, and the more I'm asking questions. Um, I've got my first. Uh, Austrian economics book sat downstairs waiting to be read after I've done safe deans. But one thing I'm finding very difficult to picture is how um, how a government would operate in a world where Bitcoin becomes the primary currency. And I think a lot of people can't imagine that world because so, it feels so alien from where we are now. Can you talk me through how how the kind of picture of a government that how it operates and how the government services that are provided in such a scenario. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because I mean we we can we can look at history books and see that and even today we can see that there are governments that essentially uh don't have sovereignty over their monetary policy. Um so uh we've seen countries that have what's called dollarization where the US dollar becomes their local currency. Uh, and they have no influence over monetary policy, and yet the government continues to function. And so there's definitely examples that we can look at for that. And basically it's that they, they find ways to tax uh, value. And uh, the, I think the, the easiest way to for – and the most natural way for a government to raise revenue is by taxing real estate uh, because real estate ultimately <laughs> can't move. Um, and it's um, it's it's easily identifiable, right? So uh, whereas with crypto, you know, it might be pseudonymous, and you never know who holds how much and uh, who's sending transactions where, uh, without doing like some very sophisticated chain analysis, and even that's imperfect. So um, it's definitely the case that taxation may become harder uh, with Bitcoin, specifically, you know, with taxing transactions and uh, income. But I think that taxing real estate will always be uh, a way of uh, raising funds for governments. And then the big loss is that they lost the ability to have an inflation tax, right, which is that, uh, you know, 
indirectly through a central bank or directly uh, printing money to pay for government expenses. And um, I think that that would actually be really good for uh, accountability because an inflation tax is arguably hidden in the sense that people don't really feel it. Uh, and that means that governments can be very unaccountable in the way that they spend that uh, the proceeds from that. Um, and it would be good if if people really every every penny counted. Right. Uh, and so I think that that'll increase accountability. Now, granted, it may increase inequality, arguably, um, but we'll see. Uh, so I don't think that it'll be a challenge. Now, I think that it, it will cause a decrease in government expenses. And we can debate as to whether that's good or bad. Like, I think the people on the right would argue that that's good. People on the left would argue that's bad. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a complicated thing to almost picture. Um, and it's, it's very complicated to understand the transition when you've grown up living one life with one fiat money that actually and also what is quite interesting is i talk to a lot of my friends who have got they've got no background none of them own bitcoin and when you try and uh, explain the issues with um uh, fiat currency the basing of currency uh, the, um, it goes over a lot of people's heads because they've they've had no experience at all of any of this what do you think is a great way to start introducing people to these topics? You know, people who don't have this kind of background and start to explain to them why this is so important. Yeah, so ideally we wouldn't have to explain it, right? Because it's uh, kind mm. of a niche topic that it, I don't see why everyone should be educated about monetary economics, to be honest. It's kind of just a <laughs> – and actually, so, you know, you're saying that it's it's hard to reason about these monetary economics concepts, but I actually think that the the – Perhaps even the bigger issue is having to reason about the price. Um, we, we've never had to deal with uh, a money appearing out of nowhere with a value of zero and then going to having a value of billions of dollars and then going to like replacing other monies. Like it's just historically unprecedented. We've never had anything like this before. And I think that it's actually it's doing a lot of brain damage to people. Uh, and it's uh, <laughs> and it, it, it has to me as well. Right. Like during the bull market, I was like feeling manic because of what the price was doing. And humans just aren't meant to like cope with such dramatic changes in value over such a short period of time. Uh, it's kind of an evolutionary, uh, uh, unprecedented event. So I think the price itself is hard for people to reason about. Um, and add on top of that, having to think about issues of uh, computer science and monetary economics. Uh, um, it's, it's unfair that uh, God is doing this to us, but here we are. So I think that um, the... Uh, you know, there's there's reading lists. So uh, Safedine put together a reading list to it's kind of an intro to monetary or to to Austrian economics. Uh, and his book itself has a long intro to Austrian economics uh, to deal with this issue in particular. Um, ultimately, uh, I think that. It's strange because I don't think that everyone should be getting involved in Bitcoin uh, because in a sense that um, either either they're like intrinsically interested in it or, or not. Um, and if they're not, then 
all they have to do is just buy some on on Coinbase or whatever, and you know get a Trezor and put it on their Trezor, and hold it as like an insurance policy, as like a hedge, and just not think about it, just walk away. Like that's probably the healthiest thing for them is to just walk away. Uh, maybe I should have walked away and done that exact thing. Well, it's funny you should say that because one of my in in this section, one of my questions here is: Is there an actually a, a th- an inherent threat to not owning Bitcoin? Personally, you know, if we if 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 hyper Bitcoinization happens, is there a chance that people are going to be left behind and there's going to be a new inequality? Yeah. So um, yes and no. Uh, yes, just mathematically, right? Like if uh, Bitcoin goes to having a purchasing power in today's dollars of like a hundred million dollars, then uh, you know we've we've created a new uh, set of millionaires and billionaires who are going to uh, be consuming resources at other people's expense. So there's definitely that issue. But uh, no, in the sense that um, the whole reason why I think that this is a a good thing, uh, Bitcoin, that is, uh, and its adoption, is that I think the central banks, fractional reserve banking, and government fiat monies have done a lot of damage to economies. Uh, And we kind of saw that with the global financial crisis. But uh, it's much more insidious than that in how much they reallocate capital and themselves generate inequality. So, uh, you know, banks as the creators of money are the first beneficiaries of inflation and they are the first recipients of uh, money. Uh, So that itself creates inequality. And then the... um, you, you have kind of the welfare warfare state that itself also uh, creates not only inequality, but I think that a lot of injustice around the world in terms of uh, arbitrarily bombing countries and uh, killing people. So and to the extent that uh, Bitcoin would put a limit on the nefarious activities of governments, uh, everyone would benefit. Uh, and I think that we would have much higher real economic growth rates, many more opportunities for people, both as entrepreneurs and as uh, employees, uh, to improve their lot in life and improve their standard of living. So in that regard, I think that it would just be uh, beneficial for everyone, even if they don't own any Bitcoins going into it. See, that's also interesting because that was one of the things I read in Safer Dean's book, that the move away from the gold standard leads, leads to <laughs> increased wars and increased time at war because there's more money to to essentially create weapons. And also, it's another argument um, that is new to me that I've read a lot about, that taxation is theft, and people don't want their tax. And when I met, met with Eric Voorhees, he was saying he doesn't want his tax money being spent to bomb people in the Middle East. And I think that's something people can't get their head around early. And then, then that's made me have to think about a lot of things. Like I've had to now start questioning the National Health Service, which in the UK is an institution. But now actually, by studying uh, Bitcoin and um, um, uh, Austrian economics, I'm starting to realise, well, the NHS is essentially a socialist policy, which is theft from everyone else. And I start to, can you see how it can become quite confusing for people? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember, um, so I, I kind of went through this before Bitcoin and in, in the, when I was in high school and I was learning about Austrian economics, I was also taking an economics course in high school as well. And they were kind of presenting the, only the uh, Keynesian and neoclassical perspectives. And I, I had this moment where I was like, why why is it that I'm being taught things that 
if I think logically about it, seem just wrong to me. And they, they don't make sense. And this Austrian economic stuff makes sense. Uh, but I'm being told by my professor that it's, it's nonsense. And it caused a huge amount of cognitive dissonance because up until that point, everything I learned in school, I took to be true. You know, like uh, whether it was math class, which is like, okay, you know, this is true. Like this makes sense. Or history class. Okay. Yeah, this happened. Um, And then I started learning about, uh, you know, libertarian political theory and also uh, economics. And it caused a huge amount of cognitive dissonance where at one point I had to sit down and decide, okay, what? Do I keep like going down this rabbit hole and uh, you know causing myself this cognitive dissonance, uh, or do I just you know rethink things and start towing the government line on this because it seems like an easier existence to go through? Um, and so I, I do remember going through that, and um, yeah, I think that it's interesting that Bitcoin is is doing this. Um, I, I didn't anticipate it. I thought that everyone would, would take Bitcoin and kind of mold it to their own worldview, to their existing worldview, and, and kind of shoehorn it in uh, rather than actually changing their worldview on things. And it's gotten to the point that people are, are changing how they eat uh, <laughs> based on uh, being interested in Bitcoin. They're like, oh, I'm going to become a vegan or a carnivore. You, know, it, you kind of take on an extreme uh, view of everything. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen all these... Uh these well funny enough meetups right where you're going to have meat <laughs> the carnivores of uh, bitcoin which was also funny because i'm a vegetarian yeah <laughs> so they're questioning that um um but yeah there's there's so much to take on board and and, and understand and what why is it that you know because i did economics at a level which is um 16 to 18 in the uk uh, we were taught Keynesian economics, uh, not once were we ever taught Austrian economics. And is this just a uh, – is this some, like, insidious plan by the government to control education, like the things we hear about? Or it, it, is just Austrian economics not uh, widely known or understood? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I don't think that there is a conspiracy per se. Uh, I think that it's just that it's 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 convenient because – this education is being provided by the government, and it makes sense that they would present arguments that are pro-government. And um, I wouldn't expect them to uh, be very um, essentially, uh, you know, uh, intellectually curious and wanting to show both sides of the argument. Uh, when it's clearly to their disadvantage uh, from a government perspective. But I don't think that it's like uh, a cabal of individuals who decided that, hey, we're not going to teach Austrian economics. Um, It's just it's it's evolved this way. Uh, And economics is also there's just a lot of debate as to what methodology uh, economics should have. And so um, this has been going on for for centuries uh of different ways of thinking about it and the other thing too is that it's economics is deeply tied into politics and political economy is uh what it used to be called and it it is very highly political uh so i think that when when governments started doing um you know, public education, and that was that was a very new phenomenon. It started in the 20th century, really, where the government was uh, handling this whole uh, bureaucracy of uh, teaching everyone. Uh, I think that's when 
you really saw a divergence where uh, Keynesianism became ascendant and uh, Austrian economics became forgotten uh, until the internet came along and these people started connecting the dots and being like, hey, look, this is like forbidden knowledge, basically. <laughs> but is it something you would have discussed with your professor and said, oh, what? This, this makes sense to me, this Keynesian stuff doesn't? Are they conversations you had? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, the the... The reason I don't think it's a conspiracy is because they themselves don't even know what Austrian economics is. So they they might have like one or two line, you know, um, uh, quips about it that, you know, the dismissive uh, little sentences. But if you were to probe them about, oh, well, you know, what, what is praxeology? They're like, I, I've never heard the word before. So um, it's not like. It's not like that they're taught Austrian economics and then taught why Austrian economics is wrong. Uh, In fact, there's just very little out there explaining why, from a mainstream perspective, is Austrian economics wrong. Uh, They just don't even bother engaging in the argument. Are are there any solid counter-arguments or areas within Austrian economics which are kind of grey areas, even yourself, that you find difficult? Uh. No, not really. Uh, I think the 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 arguments that I've read again against Austrian economics, um, they 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 inevitably slip into straw man arguments where they are refuting things that aren't actually Austrian economics, but they're the author's idea of what Austrian economics is. Um, and I think that that's really a, a disservice to the profession of economics that they haven't really taken it particularly seriously. Um, and so I, I would be, if there are listeners out there who have uh, very good uh, arguments against Austrian economics, I'd be interested in hearing them. But uh, I've been disappointed so far. Yeah, it's uh, well, like I say, it's, it's you know, it's new to me, and I'm I'm trying to consume as much as I can, and 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 reading Saferdine's book. I kind of just going through it and every page going, well, that just makes sense. I like, why has that happened? Um, I mean, it wasn't, it was only, uh, I would say in the last six months, I fully understand um, fractional reserve banking, which just seems now absolutely ludicrous. But I just don't think there are enough people who understand or question this. And like I say, it, it takes a long time for some people like myself. Um, okay, so that's really interesting. So just moving on, I... <laughs> It's obviously been a kind of crazy year, the last year with Bitcoin and altcoins. Uh, prices going to $20,000, which was obviously insane. Do prices matter to someone like you? Yeah. I, Outside of your own gain? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that they are a the litmus test, the prime indicator for where we are in the process of uh, replacing these uh, government currencies. And so I, I see the price as uh, very important. Uh and, you know, I, I understand people are, you know, who say, oh, the price doesn't matter. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Um, and that's fine as a soundbite. But uh, I th- and mm-hmm. I, I do agree that the price day to day doesn't matter. And like people who are like, oh, you know, uh, there's all this good news coming out. Why isn't the price going up or uh, vice versa? Like that's nonsensical to me. I think that people uh, try to read into the markets way too much. Um, but the bottom line, I think, is that basically the fundamental value of Bitcoin, uh, if you want to 
call it that, is is going up every day. And to me, the fundamental value is a function of time uh, due to what's called the Lindy effect, which is that the longer Mm -hmm. something has been around, uh, specifically a a non-perishable good like Bitcoin, the longer we can expect it to be around. And so every day that goes by, I think the fundamental value of Bitcoin increases. And if markets were perfectly rational and uh, run by robots, uh, then Bitcoin's price would go up along with this fundamental value by X percentage every day, you know, in a mechanical nature, uh, a linear uh, increase in price. Now, because humans are deeply flawed and very emotional beings uh, and subject to all sorts of cognitive biases, uh, we don't have that. <laughs> and so uh, when Bitcoin's uh, price is going up at a reasonable clip that is justified by fundamentals, uh, we have momentum traders that jump in and they pile in and they th- then, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling uh, process of the media seeing the price going up, people hearing about Bitcoin again. So uh, I want to do a side note here. I think that so with time, so you worked in advertising, there's kind of this idea of like, mm-hmm. the more times someone sees an advertisement, the more likely they are to then, when they're making a decision about what toilet paper to buy, they buy that brand. And so if they see an advertisement yeah. once, they might not necessarily buy that brand. But on the 10th time they see it, now when they go in the shopping store, they're going to buy that brand. And so I think it's the same thing with Bitcoin. Uh and different people have different, uh, you know, number of occurrences that uh, they need to have before they buy Bitcoin. So for me, for example, it was two. I heard about Bitcoin twice and then I bought some. <laughs> uh, and so some people, it's like 20 uh, or 50 times. Yeah. That they're like, oh, that thing's still around? Oh, okay, maybe there's something there. Let me go read about it. Let me go open an account on Coinbase and buy some. So uh, anyway... Uh, so they hear about Bitcoin because the price is going up and it's in the media and they they buy at the worst time possible or really, I mean, not necessarily. Right. Because the media was talking about Bitcoin yeah. at four thousand dollars and it was an all time high and people would be like, oh, don't buy at four thousand dollars. Wait for a correction. Yeah. OK, well, <laughs> we still haven't corrected down to four thousand. I'm not excluding the possibility that we do. But, uh, you know, that my point is that. Uh, or, or they buy at eighteen thousand uh, dollars because you know they're panic buying and they think it's going to go even higher. So uh, all this to say that all that all they say all they say oh, oh, aren't I too late? Yeah, that's the question yeah. I get. Like, aren't I too late? So uh, all all this to say that uh, the the price uh, overshoots the fundamental value and has a huge run up and then crashes because you you run out of marginal buyers and the momentum traders go in full reverse and uh dump essentially uh and so then it it probably overshoots on the downside as well is that uh the price goes below what the fundamental value is and then you have a a slow recovery uh from that bear market so i think that uh, the price is important in if you take into account that it's going to have these oscillations around the fundamental value. But ultimately, it, it is a good indicator of where the fundamental value is um, if, you, if you think about the mean reversion. And I guess, therefore, you embrace and support derivatives. You hope for an ETF and um, uh, you embrace futures because it's wider acceptance and it's... Uh, 
embeds Bitcoin within the financial systems. Yeah, so there's there are two different points of view on on things like that, which is uh, one point of view from kind of the cypherpunk decentralization point of view. It's like, oh, you know, if you don't own your own keys, then those aren't your Bitcoins. And, uh, you know, the government is going to seize all of these Bitcoins that are held by an ETF or uh, the futures are manipulating the price down and all of this, uh, all of this rhetoric. And I, I sympathize with it a lot on an ideological level, but um, from an economic perspective, uh, all of these financial instruments are inevitable, but also dramatically increase Bitcoin's liquidity and dramatically increase the uh, total addressable market of people who can uh, gain exposure to Bitcoin and ultimately you know, are, are driving the price of Bitcoin up, uh, which I think is, is a positive. And, and while a cypherpunk might not necessarily go buy the Bitcoin ETF, uh, he or she still direct, indirectly benefits from its existence. And um, I do see it as kind of a Trojan horse. You're right that it is embedding itself in the financial system and ultimately will help facilitate speculative attacks against that very same financial system. And it's quite interesting that um, there's obviously been quite a, a, a firm regulatory lens over uh, the whole crypto ecosystem over the last year, but it seems that it, it's there are no real problems with Bitcoin. It's everybody else who has to be worried. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, there's problems for Bitcoiners, like uh, Jameson Lott pointed out that he got swatted, and so th- we are seeing like instances of people Bitcoiners getting burglarized, uh, and so that that's no good. But I, I don't know if that's what you meant. Sorry. <laughs> no, I meant like on a, the regulatory side of things. Um, you know, with the SEC looking at things, it seems like Bitcoin oh. is outside of any kind of regulatory framework uh, and, and regulatory risk, whereas things like Ethereum, Ripple, um, everything else, which all they all seem quite ridiculous now, um, uh, seem to have a, a quite a high threat. Yeah, I think that it, it goes to the origin story of Bitcoin and also its current state of decentralization. So um, in terms of the origin story, uh, that's kind of what differentiates Bitcoin from Ethereum. From a uh, kind of a, a regulatory perspective, uh, now arguably today they are both uh, decentralized enough that they are no longer uh, that Ethereum is no longer uh, you know suspect from the SEC's perspective. That's kind of what they've been saying. Um, but the origin story, uh, you know, SEC people or lawyers who are, who say that Ethereum is okay today. They themselves say that, well, you know, in the past, maybe Ethereum was a security because of the way that it was pre-sold to the public and issued. Um, so I actually, I uh, on an ideological level, I do think that, it, that that's an attack on Ethereum's um, purity, if you want, of uh, its origin story. Um, I don't know that it ultimately matters from an economic perspective. Now... Uh, I think that the greater threat for Ethereum is that uh, is the scaling issue, and it, will it become increasingly centralized and revert back into not being a security, but being subject to regulations in the sense that there is kind of a centralized entity that the government can go knock on the door of, whether that's you know consensus infura uh, gateway or whatever, um, and you. you you have the same sort of thing with like EOS where it's like these 20, this cabal of 21 people uh, is not only are they easily co-opted by governments, 
they've become a government of their own. And so now they're like talking about censoring Ponzi schemes. Um, so uh, I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it, it speaks. The, these are very good counterexamples when trying to explain that Bitcoin is decentralized and is not c- controlled by any group of people. Um, and we saw that with like No2x and UASF last year, but we continue to see that in contrast to uh, other altcoins. Yeah, the Ethereum thing's really interesting because obviously I told you when I first uh, used Coinbase, it was Ethereum and Bitcoin. So I looked into both of them and I, you know, Ethereum seemed interesting and cool. And it seems now just to have become a place to launch scams. Um, and um, I don't really fully understand its purpose long, long term. Um, I don't, one, one thing I, I think is a shame is that um, Vitalik seems like a very smart guy. Is it is it actually not a shame that he isn't part of the Bitcoin community and working on Bitcoin directly uh, all the time rather than essentially wasting his time on Ethereum? Um, well, I mean, this kind of goes back to our discussion about uh, uh, the value of altcoins of because essentially I think that he's brought a lot of people into crypto who are interested in non-monetary True. applications of the technology. And then they they a lot of them uh, that I, I've met personally – uh, find their way back into Bitcoin, uh, and they're, they kind of become disillusioned with Ethereum. So there's some value there. Um, the other thing is that I think that it provides a um, a pressure release valve on Bitcoin because if if Vitalik and uh, other developers who are very interested in uh, issuing assets on top of a blockchain uh, had stayed in Bitcoin and had had gotten their way of making Bitcoin more amenable to uh, issuing um, "quote unquote" smart contracts or you know DAOs and uh, ICOs and all of this on Bitcoin. Who's to say that we wouldn't have had like the DAO hack, you know, where a lot of community members mm. lost millions of dollars and then forced a hard fork onto Bitcoin, essentially. Uh, and caused another split in the community. So I think that it's kind of good to offload all of this onto uh, altcoins because I think that uh, building, uh, building, and I so it's, I got to be specific here. Building a capital market, so b- the issuance of uh, equity and uh, unregistered securities onto a platform, I think, creates a negative externality on the monetary applications of that platform. Uh, and so I think that it's it's kind of good that those things get separated out. And I'm not excited about things like rootstock or collared coins. I'd, I'd rather those stay outside of Bitcoin and Bitcoin remain 100% focused on the issue of uh, money and uh, payments. Right. Okay. So back to Bitcoin then. Obviously, I said I've been through all your podcasts. Um, There's very a lot of interesting discussions about uh, different areas of development in Bitcoin. What projects are interesting you at the moment, and and why? So I think that Lightning is interesting because it's related to payments, Um, and really, I think the 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 other um, developments that are happening is, uh, first of all, Schnorr Signatures, which is going to improve scalability and open up opportunities for uh, further improvements. And the, I think the big uh, kind of holy grail right now is the issue of fungibility and privacy. 
we see a lot of altcoins that essentially market themselves against Bitcoin in the sense that they are uh, more resistant to uh, chain analysis and people trying to figure out where funds are going on the public blockchain. So um, there are developments uh, in the works, in the pipeline, which would uh, facilitate coin join transactions so that we have more uh, mixing on by default in Bitcoin uh, and then improve, uh, essentially have it so that you have um, privacy and fungibility going in and out of uh, lightning channels. Uh, So that, but I, I really think those are really marginal in the sense that they don't affect what I think is the primary driver of Bitcoin's value, which is its monetary policy. So a- anything that doesn't affect Bitcoin's monetary policy or the credibility of it, uh, to me, it's just the, the cherry on top. It's not really uh, a, a huge uh, improvement for Bitcoin. So uh, what I'm most excited about in Bitcoin is it continues to just do what it's been doing for the past uh, years. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, enough. Yeah, the Lightning Network obviously seems very exciting. Um, what are the, what are the mis- misconceptions about Lightning Network as well? Because there are, if you do search, there are plenty of counter arguments against yeah. it. I, I, well, I th- is that just fud? Uh, no, no. There's there's lots of very good arguments against it. I think that the the biggest misconception about it, I think, is that um, it's seen as a necessity, and so it's seen as like if if Lightning Network fails, then uh, the value of BTC will crash and that it uh, will be an indication that uh, Bitcoin has failed to scale. Um, I think that there's plenty of... And so I think that the the argument that people like Safedine make and that I would make as well is that let's say Lightning Network and, and Trustless Layer 2 is just impossible. You can have a trusted layer to layer, uh, and that would be like Coinbase, right? Where on Coinbase, you can send Bitcoins from one Coinbase account to another Bit- uh, Coinbase account, uh, and that never hits the blockchain. And so that layer two is in Coinbase's database, and it's trusted, and it's basically like a, a bank, you know, uh, uh, how a bank works. And the risk there is that that degenerates into fractional reserve banking, and we end up back with the system that we had. Um, I think that the mitigation to that risk is that ultimately you can settle on chain uh, and that banks will uh, crop up and compete with each other and avoid the problems that we had with uh, government oligopolies or monopolies with central banking, uh, where essentially you have like hundreds of central banks competing with each other freely on the free market uh, with an a system that is uh, fundamentally open and uh, open source and open access and permissionless. So I think that while that wouldn't be the ideal outcome, uh, you could scale without ever having a trustless layer two system. You can scale with a trusted layer two system. So I think that's uh, the number one misconception. Um, But uh, the number two, I guess, is, I mean, these are silly, right? Which is that uh, Lightning uh, is an altcoin. I think that's kind of like the most absurd one. Uh, <laughs> and then that Lightning itself is uh, lends itself to fractional reserve banking. I, I think that's kind of absurd. Like the, the just not how Lightning works. It's it's one hundred percent reserve, uh, and it has kind of the same. Um, it has the same guarantees around that as Layer One because ultimately these are just. Uh, 
trans signed Bitcoin transactions that you're trans transmitting around uh, without ultimately broadcasting them to the network, but uh, they they have the same um, guarantees as Layer One has with regards to 100% reserve. But it has major drawbacks. I think that having to be online all the time is a huge drawback, and having to have a hot wallet uh, to is uh, have hot funds is a major drawback. Um, and these are kind of technical engineering drawbacks, but I think that in terms of the use case of using Bitcoins as your day-to-day -day money of making payments, the biggest drawback is not an engineering drawback. And this is kind of specific to the U.S., but I think that other countries have this problem as well, is that you have to pay capital gains taxes on uh, every time that you spend your Bitcoin. So uh, we don't have wallets that have very good accounting software that calculates your capital gains for you automatically. Uh, and so I think that's like the biggest drawback and no one talks about it. Uh, the the Bcash people don't talk about it. And really, that's I think that that's what's holding back uh, the retail usage of Bitcoins the most or crypto in general. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I've, I'm not actually I don't have a I think Lightning's interesting, but it's not something I'm screaming out for. I, I pay I buy things with Bitcoin. They tend to be like I pay my I've got some miners, so I pay my mining fees. I've got a guy who works with me. I pay him in Bitcoin. And, you know, whether it takes uh, an hour or a couple of hours to confirm, it's never been a problem. Um, I'm not screaming out for it. And I, I worry my only worry with like Lightning is that when it comes out, people just don't use it as much as, as it's expected because it's. It's not what it's designed for, as you said. So um, yeah, look, this has been really interesting. Go on, sorry. Oh no, I was going to say the the other huge criticism of Lightning is how different it is from Bitcoin, and uh, arguably Lightning is more. It, it, if you were if you were creating a payment solution, uh, adding Lightning is more involved than adding Bcash. Uh, so because like Bitcoin and Bcash have the same like you know. Is structure to them, uh, whereas Lightning is just a completely different new world with channels and uh, invoices and all of this, all of these uh, different concepts that you got to wrap your head around and, and implement. It's quite interesting. When I had my miner set up, when the guy firstly set them up, he set them up with a switcher to switch between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, which was the most um, most profitable. That switched off. It's just Bitcoin now. But I had to transfer my Bitcoin Cash out and, and sell them. Um, and I don't think there was hardly any difference in speed of uh, transaction between that and Bitcoin. I, I don't remember thinking, oh, this was quick. Yeah, well, I mean, I, they still have a 10-minute block time. Uh, but I think that the we haven't really seen uh, the competition in the sense that, like, well, we did in December, but... You know, the, you only really see the difference in, in transaction fees when uh, Bitcoin's mempool starts filling up and we have a backlog in Bitcoin. And that might that might ultimately drive more usage of Lightning. Um, but uh, we'll see. It's still very early. All right. Well, listen, I'm conscious we've done an hour and um, it'd be cool to if you close out, just tell, talk, tell us a little bit about the things you're working on and who you want to hear from and how people can get in touch with you and i'll share that all out in the show notes as well yeah so uh you can find me on twitter uh at pierre underscore rochard um and i'm on there probably too often uh and uh what i've been working on i've, I've been playing around with lightning as well uh and then just learning as much as i can i i, I just took jimmy song's programming blockchain course i'd highly recommend it um reading mastering bitcoin 
and uh, just tr- trying to see. Uh, basically, I, I want to improve the wallet situation in Bitcoin um, and uh, just learn as much as I can. I've, despite being around for years, uh, it's an onion that you can keep peeling and keep learning more. So. Uh, I still don't know everything. I know that I'll never know everything, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, thank, thanks for doing this as well, because um, my audience is probably probably a little bit newer to the space and say maybe yours and, and uh, some of these more basic questions that I know are uh, things people want to ask, but sometimes we're a bit scared to ask. So thanks for doing that. And maybe in the future we can go into uh, a bit more in depth. Yeah, that sounds good. I'd be happy to come back on. Okay, thanks, Pierre. Thank you. Bye. So what did you make of that? Was that useful to you? I mean, it, it was really useful to me and I would definitely like to get Pierre back on the future and maybe go into some more detailed subjects. It's very early on for me. Some of these kind of deep technical and economic and philosophical uh, ideas around Bitcoin take someone like me a bit longer maybe for others than others to understand. And um, I am doing my best to uh, expand my knowledge. I am... Um, as I said, I've, done, I've listened to every one of Pierre's podcasts. I've, I'm pretty much halfway through Safer Dean's book, The Bitcoin Standard, and I'm reading more and more about Bitcoin. And the, the arguments as a single monetary unit are starting to make a lot more sense to me. But I hope it, I hope it was helpful to you. I am working on getting some more uh, Bitcoin people to come on the podcast. I've got a couple of people who said yes. <laughs> I've had a couple of people say no. But uh, yes, I've had a couple of people say yes, and I want to explore this further. And I will obviously share out my knowledge with any of you who listen to it. Uh, lastly, please do support the show. Please do leave me a review on iTunes. Follow me on social media. I'm at what Bitcoin did at everything. Go to my website, www.whatbitcoindid.com, and follow my blog. Uh, share the show out with your friends and family and obviously feel free to email me if you have any questions i pretty much get back to everyone and my email address is hello at what bitcoin did.com uh, listen i hope you all have a fantastic week and i will see you soon bye you're listening to bottom shelf bitcoin episode 24 everybody welcome back to another episode of bottom shelf bitcoin the podcast that puts bitcoin knowledge within everyone's reach as always i'm josh humphrey your host and today my guest is bitcoin maximalist co-founder of the satoshi nakamoto institute and founder of bitcoinadvisory.com pierre rochard pierre welcome to the show hey josh thanks for having me on yeah absolutely thank you for coming on and before we get into anything else i just want to say thank you for the bitcoin maximalist dinner that you guys did in dallas that was a lot of fun so uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming out to that. Uh, I agree. That was a huge amount of fun hanging out with a bunch of like-minded individuals in person. And it was maybe the loudest room I've been in in a very long time. Yeah, that was that was crazy. Um, and I don't know if the restaurant, uh, if we broke a record there as well. Yeah. Well, I was really impressed. This has nothing to do with <laughs> anything I want to ask in the interview. I was really impressed when I stepped out of that room that we were in that you really couldn't hear everybody. So whatever sound insulation they've got going on in those walls is top notch. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, so 
what is your kind of give me an idea what's your background even maybe even before bitcoin or i don't know uh you know what do you do outside of bitcoin i guess yeah so i guess the first relevant part of my background uh in high school i got interested in like linux and open source software um but i never really uh i never programmed um and then i got really interested in austrian economics um and ron paul came along got interested in libertarianism anarcho-capitalism uh then i got my bachelor's and master's in accounting at ut austin um and the last year of graduate school at ut austin i was part of uh, something called the mises circle which was like a reading group for austrian economics uh and i was part of that with michael goldstein and daniel Krawitz. um and we were debating fractional reserve banking and 100 percent reserve banking and at some point the subject of bitcoin came up uh once i realized and i'd heard about it like once before because of the silk road but i didn't really it, it didn't cross my mind that this was an interesting issue despite the fact that i mean i'd been reading about austrian monetary economics since you know i was a junior in high school um but when i heard about it the second time i actually you know f- f- did a little bit of research and found its monetary policy and when i saw that chart of like there's only going to be ever, ever be 21 million bitcoins it immediately struck me that this was a very very interesting economic experiment uh that if it was successful uh would ultimately lead to the demise of fiat currencies which i'd been kind of railing against uh you know with and the fed and whatnot for years um and so that's that's where things started at late 2012, early 2013 for me. So is that so the Mises circle is that how you and Michael met? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we um I I I knew of him on uh Facebook because I was in some of the same groups, but I'd never hung out with the libertarians uh in real life at UT Austin before that. And so uh yeah, I just remember walking into this classroom and uh, Michael was sitting, you know, shit posting memes on Facebook uh, about Ludwig von <laughs> Mises. Um, and yeah, so we, we quickly became friends. And now you, I know that you and Michael kind of do the, the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute thing. And um, you've got a couple of other projects. What, what do you do in the, in the meat space? Like what, do you have a day job? Uh, so I uh, was working as a software engineer until I had my son in February, and I've been on on paternity leave since. But yeah, I've got to I've got to get a day job at some point and make uh, some more income. But uh, in the meantime, enjoying time with my son and getting lots of time to do Bitcoin related things. Let's start out with kind of going over you. You had an article right before the Bitblock Boom conference, and then you kind of talked about these ideas again at the conference um, about Bitcoin governance. You know, you talked about like this, this idea of Bitcoin being intersubjective and that objective governance creates a, a single point of failure. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? It kind of operates on multiple different levels, but basically, I mean, if we're talking about Bitcoin's governance, 
the consensus rules, that is the transaction and validation uh, verification rules that everyone agrees upon, uh, you know, and we kind of globally call consensus, um, those exist as an intersubjective reality in the sense that they are, um, they're not chosen objectively by whether it's Satoshi or by um, any one person or any one group of people like the miners or something like that. Um, rather, there's they're software that's chosen to be run by this set of nodes. And the people making those choices are free individuals looking at, you know, free and open source software. Um, so it's up to them to kind of form this emergent consensus of what Bitcoin is. Um, and that's an intersubjective reality in the sense that the Bitcoin Cash people who, uh, for some strange reason, are in RBTC, they should be in RBCH, but uh, they believe right. that Bitcoin is Bitcoin Cash um, and that Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. So um, they are living in their own intersubjective reality. Uh, while I think most of the rest of the world uh, understands that um, Bitcoin is one specific uh, currency uh, money that's attached to a specific set of validation rules and a uh, history, a blockchain. How how important is social signaling? So let me, let me just preface this with, I've, I've seen the UASF hats and for my own self, like... Uh, it was probably about a year ago when people were talking about SegWit that I I owned Bitcoin, but I didn't understand it. Like I had a I had a loose understanding of how blockchain worked, but I did not understand. Like I hadn't been in the forums, I hadn't really done any technical reading, and so between the the UASF and then after that, but before two X is when I kind of started doing the technical deep dive and like actually understanding how things work, but like from someone who was there kind of at that time and seen other things before that, how important is this idea of like social signaling? Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So um, if I think back on my own experience with the, uh, I think the premier and just, there's just no other debate that's comparable to it in the history of Bitcoin's governance, uh, which is the block size limit. Um, and when I look back, I, I had a view on it uh, from the moment I got into Bitcoin and, and heard about this when one megabyte limit that it just if when I read the white paper and saw that the block reward would be replaced by transaction fees, um, it became apparent to me that that means that there needs to be a, a fee market and pressure for higher fees because the relying on the technical limitations of block propagation times and um, self-restraint by uh, miners uh, seemed to be a, a quick way to get everything centralized uh, where basically you wouldn't be able to run a node that that ultimately is how you automate the uh, your subjective view of what the Bitcoin verification rules are. Um, so it, it intuitively made sense to me that there would be denial of service um, limitations on uh, things in the protocol. And so we see that with the block size limit, but there's also like a SIG ops per block limit and SIG ops per transaction limit. 
to minimize the amount of, um, or at least mitigate the resource usage from uh, transactors on the network. Uh, and so, because there are no negative externality on uh, nodes. So um, I, 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 saw, I saw the biggest issue with hash rate is it being too low in the long run. And to prevent a ha- the hash rate being too low in the long run, the this limit on the block size, w- whatever it may be uh, as time evolves, um, but it's crucial because uh, if you're trying to think about how a business would maximize revenue, if they are a monopoly, and so miners are a monopoly on uh, shot on. Um, on timestamping, uh, on this secure timestamping, the secure timestamping function of Bitcoin is a unique thing. So there's no way to, um, there's no, it's not like there would be two competing timestamping functions within Bitcoin. Like theoretically that's possible, but that doesn't exist. Um, and so basically this timestamping function is a monopoly. And if you think about how to maximize the revenue for a monopoly, it's not the case that you uh, just release or create as many goods as the market needs, as, as people need, um, because your marginal revenue starts dropping dramatically. Uh, and the by limiting supply and creating artificial scarcity, uh, you can drive up total revenue beyond just what you would have gone from gotten from uh, having more marginal revenue from you know producing more units. So, like, I mean, the classic example would be like a luxury good, right? Like, so uh, a limited edition Lamborghini, you only make 400 of them. Uh, and presumably the total revenue you get from that would be greater than mass producing these um, because they would just lose their collector's value. Uh, so th- that's kind of the way I was thinking about the issue of revenue maximization to prevent a too low hash rate uh, in the, in you know, once the block as the block reward gets phased out um and the reason you want to have a a healthy hash rate and you know we can debate about what what level or what you know range of hash rate makes sense but um basically the lower the hash rate is the more confirmations you have to wait for uh if you want to have the same guarantees um all else equal so uh today the rule of thumb is like six confirmations if hash rate was quote-unquote too low maybe it would be like 60 confirmations or 600 confirmations and then that that is directly tied to also the amount of value being transacted so you know if people are using bitcoin as a means of global settlement and that would mean that you would have you know multi-billion dollar uh transactions payments going through uh the bitcoin network and uh it would be bad uh, if people had to wait years f- before being able to spend those uh, because the hash rate's too low. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, yeah. real quick, I'm just curious wh- what are you what are you saying would cause that hash rate to be too low? Well, because of the uh, block reward halvings. So, uh, is we have these halvings and they're very aggressive, right? And so, basically, um, I actually had the spreadsheet open earlier today, but the it, it's a dramatic drop off in terms of what percentage of uh you know uh the stock to flow ratio uh 
how that's affected. So every four years, you know, we go from 50 Bitcoins created every 10 minutes to 25 to 12.5 uh, to 6.25, et cetera. And um, if over the long run, if those happenings don't have or are not coinciding with an increase in the transaction fees, which go to the miners, uh, that means that the miners total revenue is drifting down uh, and getting halved every four years. Um, and at some point, uh, the block award, you know, in 2100 is zero. But that's not really the relevant point in uh, in time to be looking at. Like it's it's the problem is not going to arise when we go to a block reward of zero. The problem is going to arise probably within, I would argue, like 12 years uh, to 16 years. Uh, so by no means, like I say it's long run, but really, I mean, it's not really that long run. You know, there's... Uh, right. Um, and At least for people with a low time preference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it's well within our lifetimes. You know, we're all very young. So uh, it's something that is, is important to be thinking about. Uh, and especially because... When do you want to break user expectations is the question. So do you want people to be dependent on cheap layer one transactions uh, until it's too late? Or do you want to break that expectation early on in the system so that people have more time to adapt and create layer two solutions, whether they're trustless or trusted? Yeah, yeah. The longer you put the problem off, the worse it, you know, inevitably it's going to happen. And so the worse it'll be. Or the, the more drastic it'll have to be whenever it actually happens. Yeah, I actually I want to come back to your uh, original question because it was a very interesting question about this the signaling and how much it matters. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm almost getting, I'm it. almost there. Uh, so um, <laughs> I I debated this issue with Gavin Andreessen on IRC back in the day, and um, I thought that his point of view reflected the point of view of the rest of the Bitcoin Core contributors at the time because he was leading the project. He was putting out blog posts that were talking about 16 megabyte, 32 megabyte blocks. Um, and so at the time, I thought, wow, these Bitcoin core developers are are nuts. They're, they want massive blocks. And like people like Mike Hearn and uh, Jeff Garzik, they seem to be going along with it. And they're like well-known people, you know, developers, certainly better known than the other ones at the time. Um, and so... Th- that I, I use that example because I thought I was also when I read like Reddit threads and whatnot, I thought that I was in the minority with regards to the issue of uh, the block size limit. And I thought that the situation was basically, uh, you know, a, a, a already baked in conclusion that there was going to be block size limit increases uh, despite my opposition and my belief that they are bad for Bitcoin in the long term. Um, and it really wasn't until uh, uh, Twitter, but, uh, you know, the, uh, I would say the, the, the resistance towards uh, XT at the time was the first hard fork attempt. And then there were other ones, the like Bitcoin classic uh, and seeing the, opposition with each you know new attempt uh grow louder and louder and stronger and stronger and that crescendoed into the no 2x movement uh in november when uh the their whole thing fell apart uh and you know victory was achieved 
But uh, I think that the social signaling is really important. The problem is that you never know if you're getting sibled or not. So you have to have a web of trust that allows you to uh, see these signals and trust them. Uh, if you see, see, because if you just see these signals in terms of sock puppet, uh, you know, Twitter or Reddit accounts that were bought and paid for, and they're just putting out this information, and you don't even know who these people are, or uh, they're they don't have a years long background in the industry, or uh, you know, commenting on Bitcoin or being on Twitter and shit posting. Uh, it's very easy to like be misled about where the support is. You know, they'll like ballot stuff, the uh, polls and all this. But if you have a web of trust, that is that people that have been around for a while now and you've seen them generally say things that you agree with uh, and even people that have t- attached their real identities to their Twitter profile or you've met in real life and, uh, you know, have allowed themselves to be doxxed. Um, so that that begins to form a web of trust that then when you have signals about what does the community support or not, uh, well, you can verify that in your web of trust uh, pretty easily. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that, that's my spiel on that. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. That's just funny to me. I see what you're saying, and I agree. But it's just funny. Like, we're, we're, we're building this network of trust-minimized, yeah. you know, uh, interactions. And yet, at some point, when these changes happen, Trust still is very important. Well, to an extent, right? Because uh, let's say that the people you were trusting uh, were not trustworthy. Uh, that means that basically if, if you were doing UASF, right, for example, uh, then your node would uh, stall out because no blocks would be getting mined for you. Um, and so you kind of have to look at like, okay, if this trust was betrayed, what are the consequences? In the case of something like UASF, um, for for the most part, I mean, I, I know that there are situations where there could be a loss of funds or uh, wider issues, but for the most part, it seems like if if your node, if you were misled into running this node that has a consensus rules that no one else is going to follow, there's no consequences for that. Uh, in fact, you could just run a UASF node and a you know, let's call it Satoshi legacy node. Uh, simultaneously uh and so in that regard i I think that's why now that's why it's basically a shelling point is my argument too is that a shelling point consensus or a a shelling point sorry uh is um is something that two parties come to without ever communicating with each other so like one example is and this is my favorite example is if you were in New York City, I don't know. Have you visited New York City, Josh? I have. Uh, I've been twice briefly. So, so. let's see if this yeah. uh, shelling point experiment uh, it works out. So you're in New York City and someone else is in New York City and you're going to meet them on a specific day, but you don't know at what specific time and you don't know at what specific location. So you have to think about where would this other person, uh, you know, expect to meet me? And where do they expect that I would expect to meet them? So it's kind of like a circular thing um, because you can't communicate with this yeah. other person. So 
what, what time of day and what location would you pick? Hmm. Is do I get to know anything about the other person, no, or that's no? It? That's that's part of the shelling point is that you're you're, you're basically <laughs> you're only reliant on uh, a like your past personal experience, but also be your understanding of the topography of uh, New York City and all of the different options that are available to you in terms of meeting places uh, and their relative benefits versus other locations of meeting, uh, and then you know the time is. Uh, obviously you've got 24 hours on the clock, but you also, um, would want to think about when would someone want to meet and what time would be convenient for the average person. Yeah. So, right. So, hmm, I'm going to go with, uh, <laughs> so not, not having a good understanding of like paths to get around the city. So, so I don't have a good understanding of like the train system or the buses or yeah. anything like that. So not knowing that I'm going to go with the empire state building at noon. All right. So you're half right. Uh, noon is correct, but it would actually, okay. Most people. And so like, that's the thing too, is that there's several different shelling points. So in this example, you have ended up with the B cash people, uh, at the empire. No. Building, um, because all the Bitcoiners are at grand central station. Ah, <sighs> Yeah. Okay. I can see that. That makes more sense. Yeah. So it, that I think illustrates the, the concept of a uh, shelling point. And so if you were to survey a thousand New Yorkers, you would find that 800 of them would tell you Grand Central Station. Uh, and then the rest would be off in Looney Land, either at the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty or the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, like there's or uh, Central Park or something. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. See, I wasn't going to pick Statue of Liberty because of the you know, it, it takes a little, yeah, a lot more effort to get there. I know that much. For sure. And when you say Grand Central Station, that makes sense, of course, because it's such a hub yeah. of transit. Yeah. So, but I, but I wasn't thinking transportation-wise, so, okay. But but noon is the correct time? Noon is the correct time, yeah. That's just the most convenient time for everyone, right? So, you're, you're trying, so shelling is like, you're trying to guess what someone else would guess that you would guess. Right, and, and you don't have information from them you know you can't communicate with them and so i think that if we assume that social signaling on twitter is compromised which i think you know is a good healthy assumption to have um then you are playing a a shelling point game and it kind of falls on you know do you think that other people are going to run uasf and then that means that you got to do research on the topography of bitcoin right and so like yeah, and the possible different sets of Bitcoin validation rules. And you got to look at these different validation rules and kind of think like, you know, you know, well, so first of all, there's a huge default towards the existing validation rules. Um, and so you've got to like keep that in your mental model. Uh, but otherwise, you're evaluating these different validation rules and thinking about whether other people are going to show up that shelling point with you. Okay, so then... Why, since we're we're kind of in that same time frame a year later as when uh, UASF and the hard fork and all this stuff happened, why, you know, my understanding was at least at some point of a good majority of the mining consensus was was leaning towards Bcash. Ex- explain to me why, I and mean, I think I have an idea, but like why that doesn't matter. 
And, yeah. ma- and maybe 2x is a better example. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the reason that the miners didn't really matter uh, for the Segwit 2x issue, um, they committed to participating for up to 24 hours and essentially be mining at a loss um, because what what happens is that if miners um, first of all if 90% of the miners uh, leave that means that mining a block takes 10 times longer so that's 100 minutes so now we're in 40 minutes so that means that Bitcoin blocks would still the legacy chain Bitcoin blocks would still be getting mined uh, you know, every hour and 40 minutes, assuming that its value remained the same on the exchanges, right? Because then if the miners would leave even more if the if the value dropped on the exchanges. Um, the SegWit2x right. uh, people thought that by uh, taking the hash rate and directing it in another direction, they could cause the exchange rate at which Bitcoin is trading to, to change. And so essentially that the BTC chain would... Uh, collapse in value and the uh s2x uh chain would increase in value um from the miners doing that and they kind of got backed into this uh silly um charitable mining theory because they tried to have it so that there was no replay protection so that essentially uh exchanges would not be able to list both uh, the old chain and the new chain, but rather that they would be forced to go along with the quote-unquote upgrade. Uh, but what ended up happening is that exchanges implemented um, uh, replay protection manually, and so that generally uh, entails mixing um, Bitcoins that were mined in the other chain uh, with their coins in transactions. And so by, by mixing the uh, block reward in with your coins, you can uh, cause them to be replay protected on that chain. Um, so this uh, this made it such that the exchanges would have been able to list both the S- Segwit2x coin and the uh, Bitcoin. Um, and thus, you know, they would be trading in value and the miners understood quickly by looking at the futures prices that showed that uh, Bitcoin would have 90% of the value that they wouldn't be mining this S2X coin for very long because it would be so un- unprofitable to do. Um, and really kind of it's just it's a vicious uh, prisoner's dilemma because if the miners the first miner to defect, you know, gets more and more transaction fee revenue based on the mempool backlog that's building up. Um, something that Bcashers often miss is that uh, the while uh, nodes do not mine blocks, right? Miners do. Uh, nodes do have mempools right. that accumulate f- transactions that have an escalating uh, transaction fee attached to them. So at some point, a miner is incentivized to defect and come along and mine the chain that has value. Uh, And this actually, I think the part of this misunderstanding is like a difference between the um, classical slash Marxist labor theory of value and the Austrian uh, individual subjectivist uh, theory or marginal theory of value. Um, So they kind of got tripped up on their economics there. Um, And that's why, yeah, that's why uh, 90% of the miners 
not liking Bitcoin is okay. I mean, they're they're mercenaries. I don't really care if they like Bitcoin or not. They're just there to provide a, a secure timestamping function for the consensus rules. Right. And and for those who aren't aware, um, so the Marxist. The, let me see if I can do this real quick. So the Marxist labor theory of value says that uh, you know this product required x amount of labor put in by the worker and so it therefore should cost that many dollars or whatever or, or correlated yeah. you know have a correlated value to how much labor was put into it versus the austrian view is that the value of a thing is determined by the the person it's a subjective value determined by the person who's willing to pay for it exactly that's exactly right I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do that quickly or not, but no, that yeah, was that flawless worked. explanation okay. of those. Yep. So while we're talking about social social things, um, I've heard you talk uh, a number of times about the benefits of of creating your own Twitter echo chamber. Um, <laughs> so so why do you why do you think that's good? Because I know that there's a lot of people, and and this is not in Bitcoin necessarily in particular, but there's a lot of people in general right now who uh, let's say in American politics or whatever, and, and just looking at how extreme, you know, different sides get and just say like, we need to, you know, this only happens because we close ourselves off and we don't listen to the other side. And then it gets so extreme that we we're not even on the same planet anymore in a sense. Um, so, so they, they say that, you know, instead we should be listening to people from all sides of the argument and conversing with them. Why, why do you say that an echo chamber is good? Oh, um, so I, I don't know that that assessment of uh, politics is correct. Like to me, the, the reason people become uh, uh, so uh, like conflicted with in conflict with each other over politics, in my view, is because of uh, the ever expanding reach of the federal government and uh, the, you know, ever decreasing amount of local control over uh issues um so whether it's like the second amendment or abortion or whatever um and that essentially a different groups of people are going to evolve in different directions and so i think that uh different parts of the u.s should be able to have their own policies and then we wouldn't have to have these big national debates where your policy is either uh forced upon others or other people's policies are forced upon you um and so I think that uh, Bitcoin's solution to that is that if you don't like the policies of the the you know current shelling point, um, then you are free to create your own cryptocurrency um, and fork off or uh, you know create something from scratch. Um, so uh, in in that context, I, I don't see an issue with uh, essentially censoring out any views that. I don't generally agree with, um, and the there's there's different like forms of of me rationalizing slash justifying this, but um, at the end of the day, it's like I, I I enjoy Twitter to the extent that I can filter what is getting into my feed, um, and I would cease enjoying Twitter or visiting it if the feed didn't uh, provide me with 
things that I found to be uh, pleasant and interesting. Um, and really, I mean, there's a lot of exaggeration in the sense that me being in a filter bubble and like being in an echo chamber, you'd be amazed by the amount of controversy that exists within this echo chamber and how many people disagree with each other uh, and uh, the the arguments that I have. And so um, I, I don't think that... Well, so the the other aspect of it is that having like been around for five years now, I think I've heard every stupid argument and every intelligent argument for and against like every topic in uh, crypto. And people like to think that their project is like new and interesting, but uh, generally it just like fits into a pre-existing category of being like an app coin or an altcoin or uh, a security uh, or a gift card or airline miles. You know, like it's not like they're going to come up with something that's like, whoa, this is a new form of economic good that I had not ever imagined would happen. Like uh, I, I, no one's going to repeat what Satoshi did and like make something come out of thin air. It's it's just people uh, a- aping or, um, uh, uh, you know, doing live action role play of being innovators yeah no i agree and i i mean some of that was just i I just i just wanted to hear the way you said it i i agree on the the stuff about federal control and that um you know giving more control back to the states would be good or or even them I, i think i'd be okay with a lot of secession um and then and then with twitter i i mean everybody's got their own version of to, to some extent, right? Like I, I can't control the algorithms, but I can control my filters. And I, if I don't want to hear what someone has to say, I can mute them or block them or, or whatever. And so everybody does it to some extent. It's, you know, um, I, I will say, and I, I can't emphasize this point enough is that uh, 90% of the problem is the quality of the people who disagree with me. And so like, <laughs> I, I'm serious. Like I follow, you know, Preston Barron, who's like, a crypto skeptic and a Bitcoin skeptic. And I just, I, I, th- I think he expresses himself intelligently and has intelligent arguments. Uh, and so there's no reason for me to mute block or not follow him. But like all of these people who, uh, you know, have like drive by tweets that are just like weak attempts at trolling, you know, like, uh, it's, it, if you're going to be trolling, like make it, uh, put effort into it. It's not just like, oh, you know, you're paid off by Blockstream or, you know, oh, you're just like a core troll shilling for a Segwit coin. It's like, that's not going to, that you're going to get muted. Like that's instantly going to happen. It's yeah. not like I'm going to be like, oh, let me follow up with that and see what arguments he has. And then I'll see if I can change my mind or if I'm unpersuaded, like, that's just in that context, it's just never going to happen. Uh, now, if they'd entered my feed and entered my mentions with a thought provoking and like at least semi respectful, I'm not asking you to like kiss my ass, but just like not uh, be abusive, uh, then uh, maybe I'll, I'll read it and actually follow up on it. But yeah, that's that's the other thing, too, is that uh, w- why why not have an echo chamber if like most of it is just uh, sewage. Yeah, repetitive sewage. Yeah. Okay, so 
moving, kind of moving. You're, you're in, you're in New York, correct? Uh, yeah, correct. Okay. So, so being there and kind of being near all of the, I mean, this is a, this is a, a rough segue here, but, um, being around kind of the financial side of things, the traditional finance side of things, um, is I, I think there's a, been a lot of talk and you know this ETF yes no yes no thing. You know people talk about institutional money. Um, and institutional money is coming into Bitcoin. It's definitely coming in now, or it's not coming in now, or whatever. And and there's a lot of people that say, oh, this would be really good, or whatever. Well, kind of what are your thoughts on that? And like, what what does that even mean? I guess for for somebody who, um you know, maybe for, for younger audiences that don't actually have an understanding of what institutional money means, like, what does that mean? And, and, mm-hmm. and do you think that we need it or that it would be good for Bitcoin or whatever? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, I would just start with like, uh, defining what a retail investor is. Uh, and so if you are, uh, living paycheck to paycheck, you know, with your W2 and you're an employee and, uh, you um, or you have no savings, right? And thus you're not able to invest in anything. And so you are not even a retail investor. Okay, now let's say you are saving <laughs> 10 to 20% of your salary and putting that away. Uh, you're investing in your 401k and you're investing uh, in your retirement accounts. And after that, you even have money left over. So you are investing in your taxable accounts. Uh, and you're building up a nest egg to buy a house or uh, to quit your day job and try to start your own business. Um, so at that point, you're a retail investor. And uh, so there's different um, ways uh, that a retail investor invests, whether it's uh, through you know tax deferred or tax advantaged uh, retirement accounts, taxable accounts. Um, and they, they do this through financial institutions. And so, for example, uh, something that has been kind of in the air is fidelity uh investments is kind of a a platform for a lot of retail investors who have you know their their investment accounts with fidelity and there's been noise about fidelity adding bitcoin as kind of like you know essentially having coinbase inside of fidelity um where you would be able to um buy bitcoins in your taxable or potentially your um, uh, retirement accounts. And so that's kind of like the first way that you could think about um, quote unquote institutional investment being involved, which is that financial institutions providing access to retail investors uh, as a way of uh, diversifying their portfolios. So now within individual retail investors, uh, you can get into like high net worth individuals, right? And so there they've got uh, different ways of investing and maybe they actually, they can invest in Bitcoin futures already. And so they've got that covered, uh, but they'll, they'll go and they're, uh, you know, accredited investors and whatnot, and they'll go invest in their buddy's hedge fund or a private equity firm or uh, however it may be, or, or, uh, their nephew's uh, crypto hedge fund. And so there's kind of another way of uh, quote unquote institutional investment is it's like all of these new uh, crypto hedge funds that are 
especially marketing themselves as, you know, hey, we're going to be doing different kinds of strategies uh, around uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies uh, to provide a return to your, to your investment. Um, so like these strategies range from things like doing arbitrage between exchanges or uh, you know, trying to do some like high frequency trading in the order book and market making. Um, two, actually doing fundamental research on on different coins and kind of coming up with a view on, hey, this is going to outperform Bitcoin or uh, do well in dollar terms or whatever it may be. Um, and then kind of the degenerate form of that of, oh, you know, I am friends with this guy who's doing an ICO and he's giving me a pre-allocation and I'll help him pump it and like get retail investors to buy it based on a false narrative. Um, so that's kind of like the shady earth aspect of it. Uh, but uh, the there was another thing. Oh, yeah, just like participating in like pump and dumps and keeping an eye on sentiment on Twitter and kind of figuring out ways to uh, allocate capital that way. And like the, a lot of these things had been done um, by individuals in the past uh, and kind of on their own account. Now, what's different here is that these crypto hedge funds have money from outside investors who uh, may or may not have any idea as to what you know cryptocurrencies are and whatnot. They're just seeing an opportunity here based on what they saw on CNBC or whatever. Um, so that definitely exists today and they have put hundreds of millions, if not, yeah, probably just hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, into the cryptocurrency markets widely. But I mean, any, any of these guys, like they, they have some allocation to Bitcoin, um, even if they're complete shit coiners, like that just can't help themselves. Uh, they will have some, you know, 10% to 60% allocation on like a market cap weighted uh, basis. Um, and you also have, uh, index funds. So there's like this, uh, index fund called hold 10. Uh, and there it's, it's like a crypto hedge fund, except they're saying we're going to buy the top 10 cryptocurrencies and we're going to passively hold them. Uh, and we'll rebalance as time goes by, but we're not actually doing any research on, uh, these underlying, uh, protocols or we're not actively trading or anything like that. It's just, passive exposure to this group of uh, cryptocurrencies. So that's another vehicle that um, is accessible to uh, high net worth individuals and kind of becomes an institutional investor in its own right. Um, and that's when like, so past high net worth individuals doing these things, uh, there's uh, what's called family offices, which is basically like at some point someone has so much money that, uh, they basically need to have their own in or want to have their own investment firm uh, to be making uh, these trades or uh, these um, coming up with these uh, investment theses and uh, different, um, you know, allocations and whatnot on their own uh, without using a, a crypto hedge fund. Or maybe they they're like a fund of funds. Right. And they're uh, investing in crypto hedge funds in you know 10 different crypto hedge funds thinking that, hey, one of these is not a scam. Um, and <laughs> so that's, that is actually, that, I think that's like um, the current wave of institutional investors getting involved. And that's very much like the tip of the spear. They are, they are uh, at the forefront of this because basically they don't have the limitations that a lot of other institutional investors have. And also it's a situation where, Hey, if the family 
you know, if if the uh, person who is uh, whose wealth this is uh, in the uh, family office thinks that Bitcoin's a good idea um, and was convinced by his golf buddy that Bitcoin's legit, uh, they can set the direction of where the you know investments are going to go uh, without having to consult or having much red tape um, compared to uh, a different kind of company. So for example, like I think the, the very late adopters in uh, crypto are going to be the very large hedge funds, right? So the hedge funds that have billions of dollars under management, um, they're going to, they, they just because they're older and they're bigger and they have more processes and they're more limited in the scope that they can have compared to like a family office, um, it's just going to take them longer to, to invest in Bitcoin. And so uh, the reason that this matters for Bitcoiners is because it's just a continuation of the trend, right? So, you know, we started out with like, uh, very poor retail investors who didn't know what they're doing. And we still have a lot of that. Um, and gradually you had like the Winklevoss twins, you know, put in like millions of dollars. Um, right. And that happened in 2013, early 2013. Um, so like you could consider that to be like, and then there was like Barry Silbert too. Um, you know, you can consider them to be like the first big whales that moved in that are like public and um, well known. So, uh, it's a continuation of the trend. It, it indicates that Bitcoin is increasingly liquid. An increasing number of people are understanding the investment theses for Bitcoin and uh, realize that its potential is massive and also has a high percentage chance of actually being realized. Um, and it's still undervalued relative to that. So do you think like big, I'm trying to think how to word this. Do you think big institutional investors are necessary to get us to hyper Bitcoinization or, or does it just speed things along and eventually we would get there anyway? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, definitely the latter. And then we can argue about how much they speed things up. Uh, because <laughs> I, I really, I mean, I think that if all of us uh, just kept, you know, hodling as retail investors, like we would get there because, uh, the millennials, quote unquote, you know, like they are the rising generation and they're uh, investing in Bitcoin as like, you know, every two weeks with their paycheck, they uh, put a little away in Bitcoin and a lot of them are like actively trading it and whatnot. Um, and so eventually the retail investors would cause hyper Bitcoinization in the sense that there would just be very little demand for dollars and uh, you'd have a currency substitution effect, but realistically, like the entry of institutional investors dramatically accelerates the pace at which we're going to have full currency substitution. And the reason that is is that uh, the 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 best way to really pour gasoline on the flames of Bitcoin is to uh, borrow fiat from the fractional reserve banking system and thus create money uh, in the fiat system and buy Bitcoins with that. And so that's kind of like leveraged buying of Bitcoins where you're getting your leverage from the fiat system. And that introduces a feedback loop where uh, they're essentially printing money to acquire Bitcoins. Um, and then the dollar collapses uh, and that's kind of just a speculative attack. 
So you don't want retail so investors doing this because they're going to be borrowing against like their house or their credit cards. And essentially like they, if, if things go bad, right? So if, if we're into a prolonged bear market uh, and they're over leveraged uh, and then they have to like panic sell to, you know, meet their mortgage payment or whatever, like that's a bad situation. And then they, they need somewhere to live and now they've got to, you know, get foreclosed upon and move out of their house. So you don't want retail investors uh, getting leveraged up. That's not a good outcome. What you want is institutional investors who are getting leveraged up, borrowing money from banks uh, and using, you know, trash like uh, treasuries uh, or stocks as collateral and using those to leverage up. uh, And so if things go bad, well, okay, this guy's like not a billionaire anymore. He's only a hundred millionaire. Um, but it's not like someone's out on the street uh, homeless. Um, and that's why now, granted, like there's a lot of institutional investors that are investing on behalf of other people. So like pension funds, like they should not be getting involved in Bitcoin. And they especially should not be getting involved with making leveraged, you know, purchases of Bitcoins in an attempt to cause a speculative attack. Like, it would be very irresponsible of them given their constituency. Um, but if you are like George Soros and uh, you don't give a fuck, you're just trying to make money, uh, then sure, why not go for broke and try a speculative attack against Bitcoin? So, so a lot of it has to do with the fact that they have access to to different opportunities than than you know yeah. us plebs. And then yeah. also that the, the risk is less to them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so the other th- aspect of it that is good to think about is like, um, you know, like Chiefy, when he was unnoted, he was talking about like central banks buying Bitcoins with 1% of their reserves, right? And so like they would not notice if 1% disappeared because they're making like 5 to 8% a year, you know? Um yeah. And that 1%, though, for an institutional investor, might represent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, uh, which for us plebs would be like a fortune. <laughs> so uh, right, it, right. It, 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 because they're very diversified, it dilutes the risk. Um, and then really the main thing, though, in my mind is that how, how, how can you access credit, right? And so if your only way of accessing credit is by... Um, putting at risk something that you need to make money, like your your car, for example, like it would suck that your car gets repoed, repossessed um, because you were like overextended on your uh, Bitcoin purchases. Because then you can't make yeah. more money in your S. Yep. And then uh, to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, do these, I guess, especially if you've got these uh, institutional people, if they're public and, and, and open about this, um, maybe not necessarily with their exact uh, amount that they've got in it, but just the fact that they are, uh, that probably brings back in a social effect again of like other people, you know, like uh, let's say tomorrow, somebody like Bill Gates or Charlie Munger or... Um, Warren Buffett changed their stance and said, well, okay, like, I guess it, you know, a small amount going in is fine. You know, I've seen so many people that are like, yeah, see, you know, Warren Buffett says Bitcoin's a bad idea. Like, 
does their position change and does that bring in more retail investors? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's like a huge number of people who worship Warren Buffett and will do whatever he tells them you know, to do. Um, so yeah. that's definitely the case, uh, which I think that means that, uh, you know, it, it makes sense that someone like Warren Buffett, well, first of all, you know, just like his, his investment style is very much focused on equities. Um, but the other thing too, is that as a public figure like that, like it, you could single handedly cause, you know, a, a, a crisis, uh, and, you know, cause the collapse of the U S dollar. If you go out there saying stuff like that. So, I think that like they kind of understand that role of theirs. And so they would not publicly come out and say something like that Um, on top of just like the other thing, too, is that like right now that would destroy their reputation within their community. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, And so they would be. Well, and it would also. Well, and it also like if if it happened quickly would destroy a lot of the wealth that they've made on the U.S. dollar. Yeah, to, to a certain extent. Um, granted, like the, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway companies will still be, uh, you know, producing real goods and services that will be getting bought uh, and sold in Bitcoin. Um, so they'll still have like cash flow. But yeah, it would not be like anything that's like a, a bond that has a fixed like dollar value to it uh, would be wiped out. So it'd be like a huge debt jubilee. In terms of like all these stu- all this student loan debt, all of this uh, housing debt um, would all be entirely worthless, and so people would just own their homes, uh, you know, without any debt, which would be a really interesting economic experiment. And that might be the most exciting part about. I, I hadn't really thought about that until I just uh, said it right now. So I'll start tweeting about it after this podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> all right. Um, okay. Well. So let's let's talk about your kind of your projects that you're working on. Then um, you you've got uh, where did I write this all this stuff down? Oh, so you just have like a personal like advising stuff, right? Yep, that's right. So there, like, so I'm, you... I'm focused on uh, ex- explaining the different investment theses for Bitcoin, uh, and then explaining how Bitcoin's uh, underlying technology works, like. Why is it that there can only be 21 million Bitcoins? Um, and then obviously Bitcoin's governance is part of that. Gotcha. Um, and then Bitcoin X. Yeah, so Bitcoin what, X. What uh, yeah, I I was uh, in w- one of my focuses on because of my accounting background, I'm very interested in uh, Bitcoin's wallets and also the I think that there's uh, some importance to the Bitcoin Core wallet in the sense that right now uh, the Electrum wallet is seen as the most useful one for users. And so people run like an Electrum personal server uh, and the Bitcoin Core wallet, I think, has uh, room for improvement. And so I've been involved with uh, doing code reviews and uh, adding my own code to the Bitcoin wallet, um, Bitcoin Core wallet. And so as I was doing these code reviews to, and that's kind of the first step to like learning how to contribute to a code base is by reviewing the changes that are going in. Um, I realized that there's uh, some difficulty in finding 
pull requests that I would find interesting and being able to quickly see the current state of a pull request. And uh, because there's a, you know, it's not like most pieces of software where basically you have one person who writes the code and then maybe another person who reviews it and rubber stamps it and it, you know, moves along. Uh, In Bitcoin, like there can be a half dozen people who review a pull request and do so in an in-depth manner and provide uh, very, very high quality uh, comments that then you would respond to and modify your code and update your pull request. And so this this process of back and forth between reviewers and uh, authors of pull requests, uh, I, I found to be uh, highly rewarding and also a little bit frustrating at times. Um, so that's when I realized that, hey, uh, other people are having the same kinds of issues I am, and a web interface would actually help alleviate some of these problems. Um, so that's when I created BitcoinX.com. Uh, and there, basically, you see the list of pull requests, but information about the pull requests that you would otherwise only be able to see by scrolling through all the comments, um, those comments I automatically parse and then uh, bring up to a top-level view uh, on the f- homepage of Bitcoin X. Very cool. And just for people who aren't aware, what what is it? What does ACK mean? Uh, so ACK is is short for acknowledge, but really what it means is that the person who is reviewing the code has approved it and said that they would you know essentially be comfortable with it getting merged into the uh, Bitcoin reference implementation. Yeah, and, and so for anybody who hasn't. Uh, who, who doesn't have a least a f- basic understanding of how that process works. You guys had a, a noted episode with John Newberry that was really helpful for me in understanding how that stuff worked. I don't remember what episode that number is, but I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and we need a, we're going to have John Newberry back on the podcast um, this week. So look forward oh, to that. Very cool. So that, that might actually be out before this episode is we'll see <laughs> we'll see i'm recording it tomorrow well cool so uh anything you want to plug people can find you on twitter at pierre rochard is there there's an underscore in there somewhere isn't there yeah yeah it's pierre underscore rochard um so definitely that's where i'm at all the time um and uh dms are open if you want to reach out uh also the noted Noted Bitcoin podcast and bitcoinaxe.com. I'll put links to all those in the show notes. This is episode 24. So uh, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash 24 is where all that will be. Uh, anything else, Pierre? Uh, no, I mean, go to the Nakamoto Institute, read everything that I've written there, that uh, everyone's written there. Um, and also, I mean, I think that everyone should read uh, Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, and if they have the means or the scholarship uh, to do so, to go take the programming blockchain class by Jimmy Song. Yeah, very cool. I uh, I finally finished the Bitcoin standard, so mastering Bitcoin is next on my list. I haven't got to that one yet. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that's the perfect combination. Like, that's the one-two punch, the technology and the economics, and then after that, you're good to go. Yeah, I, I have to actually get the physical version of that one, though, because I don't I kind of get the feeling with that one. Listening to it on Audible is not going to be sufficient. 
Yeah, no, and I I got the physical one as well, and it's just good to like if you're going on a commute or whatever. Where, well, I guess I mean I don't know how, if you drive on your commute, but yeah, um, I drive unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so I mean, but honestly, I think that it's worth like waking up early in the morning, having some coffee, and just like reading a chapter. <laughs> Very cool. Cool. All right, man. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right, Bottom Shelfers, that's going to do it for our show today. Remember, you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support the show with one-time or regular donations through Patreon. Um, You can also donate with Bitcoin through my PayNim address or through BTC Pay server. I've got links for those on the website, bottomshelfbitcoin.com slash donate. Um, I also had uh, some conversations with someone wanting to donate to the show and um, kind of ran into this issue that I don't actually have a simplified way of, of allowing you to donate with Bitcoin. So um, I am going to be working on that. I may be doing something where I have a different address up for each episode or something like that. I don't know. I'm working on it. So just know that. But also... I know this episode is coming out late. The more that you guys support the show, the less these come out late because I do have other jobs that that pay my bills. And if this show is paying more of my bills, then this show gets priority. So that would be awesome. Uh, Let's see, what else? Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at BottomShelfBTC. I've actually also decided to start cross-posting on Mastodon. If you don't know what Mastodon is, it is a uh, decentralized social media. So we'll see how that goes. I'm not necessarily the decentralize all the thing guy things guy, but uh, I've also seen recently how some people were deplatformed and coordinated moves by big social media companies and kind of just lost all of their access to their audience at once. So I also think it's smart to be spread out across multiple platforms. So uh, I am still, I may be behind a couple episodes on posting to YouTube. Uh, I'll, I'll try and get caught up on that. That's just not my primary thing. Audio is my primary thing. So uh, I'm on Twitter at Bottom Shelf BTC. I'm on Mastodon at Bottom Shelf BTC at Mastodon.social. And um, what else? I'm on Instagram, but that's mostly just memes. So, uh, and, and when I get a good meme, I post it on Twitter anyway. So, and now Mastodon, I guess. So, uh, hit me up on those like and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of the show that goes back to the podcast thing but whatever anyways all right guys next week i've got adam gibson one of the uh, maintainers of join market coming on to talk about uh, coin joins and join market and privacy and fungibility and all kinds of stuff so come back and listen and i really should have that one out on tuesday next week all right From Bottom Shelf Bitcoin, I'm Josh Humphrey. Thanks for listening.
Hey guys, welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, episode 3 with Pierre Rochard. And the theme is Bitcoin investment theses. So Pierre has been around Bitcoin for a while and he's a very insightful thinker. He's been quite influential over the years in terms of his understanding and foresight in terms of the investment case for Bitcoin. He has a strong Austrian economics background and knowledge and that's combined with a good technical understanding of Bitcoin. Pierre is a co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute. He is also a co-host of the Noted podcast, and he also runs Bitcoin Advisory, which you can find at bitcoinadvisory.com. He also has various Twitter uh, projects such as Bitcoin Mergers. They're also worth a follow. So many people who have listened to his interviews and read his material have had aha moments, and I'm sure you'll really enjoy listening to this conversation with Pierre. Hey, Pierre, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Let's jump into it. So uh, from your point of view, what is the point of Bitcoin and what is its potential future value? I think the the point of Bitcoin is to become uh, the global money, the sound money, uh, and the uh, pillar of civilization in the 21st century. Uh, Right now, the US dollar is kind of the global money. Uh, which gives the United States kind of a disproportionate amount of financial power and also I think is at the root of the financial problems that we've saw come to light with the global financial crisis. Um, So the first thing I wrote when I got interested in Bitcoin was end the Fed, hoard Bitcoins. So I think ending fractional reserve banking, central banking, and um, fiat government fiat monies uh, would provide an immeasurable amount of value to human civilization and allow us to uh, move forward. So um, I think that in terms of what its potential future value is, uh, really hard to have very good com- comparables. If we start with fiat, uh, so you know, there's different measures of money supply, M0, M1, M2, M3. Um, but I think that in any case, they suffer from a deep bias in the sense that uh, due to fiat's inflationary nature, uh, governments can't help themselves but print more money and uh, make life easier for themselves to pay for whatever pleases either the voters or uh, the uh, dictators that are running these Ponzi schemes. Um, and so fiat is always inflating. And so there's a bias against ever holding it as part of your portfolio. Uh, so it, you, know, you have like very, um, whether it's at a personal level where you're working with a financial planner, they're not going to put you in more than like 5% cash, right? Um, and even among like hedge funds, there's very, it's very, uh, unusual to see a hedge fund have a third of their capital in cash or half of it in cash. Um, so the reason for that is that you want to always be invested so that you're not having inflation eating away at your cash. Um, and that hasn't always been the case. So for example, if you look back at, what was written in the Torah, which is like ancient uh, Hebrew Jewish writings, uh, teachings back millennia ago, uh, they said to keep a third of your wealth in cash, which at the time was gold, uh, a third in your business and a third in land. 
so today that would be like a very unusual asset allocation. Um, so I think that Bitcoin is not a good or it can't be compared to fiat today because in a uh, in a full adoption scenario of Bitcoin, uh, p- people would be holding a much larger percentage of their portfolio in Bitcoin than they currently are in fiat, which means that Bitcoin would have a much higher value than the value you would get by looking at just uh, money supply. Um, and I would have a similar criticism for gold, actually, which is that uh, gold ultimately uh, is more inflationary than Bitcoin is. Now, right now, if you look at the annual you know, increase of supply of gold versus increase of supply of Bitcoins, and I, I want to set aside any... Uh, any debate about what the definition of inflation is. I'll I'll just be using the word very loosely in our conversation. Um, But uh, if you look at the different rates of, of creation, you know, what uh, safety and calls the stock to flow ratio um, right now, Bitcoin has a worse stock to flow ratio than gold does. But uh, over the long run uh, that, that is going to improve dramatically. And I think that, that's why gold isn't necessarily a, a very good uh, comparable on top of, you know, looking at its other properties uh, in in terms of it not being digital, right? Yeah, no, these are great points. And I think you make a good point there that gold is not the appropriate comparable. And the gold market is, what, 7 or $8 trillion? And if we were to look at global M3 broad money, we're looking at something like $90 trillion. And so, in a sense, that means, you know, it's you're you're spelling out an even more bullish kind of final future value. Not that there's a final value, um, but yeah, just but indicative. At, yeah. at equilibrium over over the long run, and really the other thing is that we we just we've never had a, a money that is this deflationary. And so, what are what is people's marginal propensity to hold bitcoins in 2100 is unknowable. Um, but if we kind of triangulate based on, uh, you know, things like gold or, or fiat, uh, we can clearly see that Bitcoin will have an astounding marginal propensity to hold and thus, uh, a astronomical value at the margin. Yeah, no, great points. Agree with that. And so this all ties in very well with the theme for today's episode, which is your articles that you wrote, Bitcoin investment theses. So uh, maybe you want to just give a quick overview of Bitcoin investment theses. Yeah, so we kicked off the podcast with really the most bullish uh, possible investment thesis, which is uh, what I think is like the ultimate um, goal of Bitcoin. Uh, But obviously, there's a lot of people who don't see it the way I do and are more skeptical or have... Um, kind of a more prob- probabilistic approach to it. Like I, I assign a 100% probability to uh, Bitcoin taking over, but um, it, it's fine if people don't share that view. Uh, and there's a wide array of alternative investment theses for Bitcoin, which uh, different people find more or less persuasive. Um, and I kind of map it out onto a... Uh, a, a graph or a chart, and if you look at the x-axis, that's kind of the potential adoption. So, how how many people would be using Bitcoin um, for this particular use case? 
And then the y-axis is the holding period. So for if, if you kind of think about it like, okay, if there's 100 people using um, one Bitcoin for one month, uh, that's the same as one person using one Bitcoin for 100 months. Uh, and so if you take those two variables together, I think that that gives you an idea of if uh, where where the value is in the sense that something that has a very low number of holders uh, for their use case. So, for example, like um, if you take uh, the nest egg for dictators uh, thesis, there's very few dictators or uh, very few you know families affiliated with dictators or beneficiaries of dictatorships. And so that's a very small pool of holders. Um, but they're more, the, and this thesis was put forward by George Soros, uh, who, who said that Bitcoin might not crash as much as we would expect because it is such an ideal form of a nest egg for dictators. Um, and then on the other side, on the holding period, you know, you can think about, okay, well, how would a dictator actually use Bitcoin? How long would he have to sit on it? Maybe he, he sits on it uh, for the duration of his dictatorship. And then when things start falling apart, uh, he, you know, goes off to a foreign country and lives off of his nest egg. So that would be a very long holding period, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years or however long. Um, and that gives you an idea of, of if this thesis is true, how much value does Bitcoin uh, accrue from it? Um, and then kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum, you might have like, Machine-to-machine uh, -machine micropayments, where these machines never actually really hold bitcoins for more than a few seconds uh, because they pass it along, uh, and thus it's not uh, a very long holding period. But there's potentially billions of machines. Uh, there might be more machines than humans eventually, and so uh, that might be a very, very large market of, of holders that just don't hold for very long. Um, so yeah, that's right. kind of the, the way I was uh, theorizing about it. Yeah, okay. No, that's great. And then I think you've kind of answered my next question, which is sort of why do we care about holding period? And as you've pointed out, it's that the longer that holding period, the more it really adds to the what we might call the reservation demand of Bitcoin as opposed to that sort of transitive or just using it purely as a payment rail aspect. And then I think – what is the significance of time preference in these different uh, investment theses? Yeah, so I, th I think, uh, well, I, w I did want to add that there's kind of a third variable here, which is what's the probability of this thesis being true? Um, yeah. And so, like, I think that the machine-to-machine micropayments, um, while on paper interesting i think that like the probability of that actually being a uh um a significant adoption vector for bitcoin is just very low um and there's other things too like for example uh well even the nest egg for dictators thesis i don't know how interested uh most dictators within the foreseeable future are going to be interested in bitcoin uh they're probably going to be interested in bitcoin when there is full adoption in the sense that it's, it just becomes a de facto you know, form of global settlement money. But in the meantime, uh, it seems like they're more interested in offshore entities that are, you know, as we saw in the Panama Papers, there's obviously plenty of legal uh, ways for them to get money offshore. 
um, without resorting to Bitcoin. But anyway, uh, to answer your question uh, regarding time preference, so I think that it's interesting. Um, I don't think that oh, as an investor, you should be looking at like what what are people's time preferences and how does that align with Bitcoin? But the problem is that there's reflexivity in it. And so arguably Bitcoin lowers people's time preferences uh, and it causes them to change their behavior and change their, uh, their, even their personality. Uh, So it's very hard to say a priori, okay, well, this thesis uh, lends itself to high time preference or to low time preference because it can have a transformative effect on people. Um, So for example, maybe someone uh, was using Bitcoin to buy drugs on the Silk Road. And so that's, that's kind of, in my view, the, the baseline definition of high time preference, right? Uh, yeah. But uh, perhaps they held a residual amount of Bitcoins that went up dramatically in value, and suddenly their time preference changed, and they were like, oh, wow, I can have a, uh, by saving and by not doing drugs, I can increasing my wealth and do more drugs in the future. Um, and so uh, that, that would lower uh, their time preference. Came for the drugs, stayed for the sound money. So, uh, yeah. Um, okay. No, that's that's a really nice way to outline it. And one thing that I really like that you've done with the investment theses is that you've tried to be balanced. You've tried to present the pro argument and then the anti, you know, the anti-thesis for that same argument. Um, I suppose out of your theses that you've got, you know, if we're going to take them and we're going to nail them on the front door of the BIS, which case is the strongest case? Which one do you think is the most likely or kind of most powerful case? Well, some of these are already being realized today. So I think that just de facto, they are the strongest cases. So speculative trading, I think, is uh, the strongest case. Um, these these online casinos like BitMEX or Binance, um, they just have a tremendous amount of volume going on them of people punting on what the uh, value of Bitcoin will be today and tomorrow. And so I think that that just de facto, if we look at reality, that's definitely the case that speculative trading is the uh, greatest uh, or the strongest case uh, for Bitcoin. Um, Now, the the problem with that use case is that you can argue that well, it's like Beanie Babies. Like people will latch on to the next you know speculative investment that comes along, and that's not really a sustainable advantage. So I think that if we have that as the strongest case, uh, I would put the second strongest case as um, holders of last resort is. I think the strong second strongest case, and in my mind, uh, I think that you know Trace is the authority on, on this. He's the one who came up with the phrase, uh, and the phrase comes from the fact that in in fiat fractional, you know, central banking, you have the lender of last resort, which is that if there's a bank run and the entire uh, system of fractional reserve lending is insolvent, uh, you have someone, some entity that is capable of uh, bailing the whole system out and uh, reintroducing liquidity to it. So that's kind of in the traditional system. And in, in Bitcoins, you have the 
the holders of last resort, which is that uh, when, and this is a very important point, which is, the, and uh, Warren Buffett made this point, Bitcoin's a non-productive asset. And that's actually true of any money. Uh, any money is a non-productive asset. Um, and the what provides a floor for the value of a non-productive asset. So for a productive asset, it's the cash flows or, you know, the, the yeah. fundamental value, uh, the liquidation value. Um, but for a non-productive asset, uh, it is the holders of last resort. The, the people who, no matter what, will not, <clears throat> excuse me, will not sell their Bitcoins. Um, and the reason that holders of last resort exist is that they have a combination of some kind of irrational um, ideological motivation. And so in my case, it's, you know, to end the Federal Reserve, but also just the this this uh, crazy wild community we've built. Um, you know, I, I, I don't see myself ever uh, selling Bitcoins and uh, getting out of the game and, you know, deleting my Twitter account. Uh, I don't know what I would do with the rest of my life. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. The I think the more rational aspect of it is that they're essentially uh, discounting the future value of this becoming a global money. And so it's an entrepreneurial undertaking, uh, taking on this, this price risk today, because we're anticipating that in the future, other people will also view this nonproductive asset as money. Um, and I think that that's, that's really the the most confusing part about Bitcoin uh, because you'll have people come out and say, oh, you know, Bitcoin's too volatile to be a medium of exchange or too volatile to be a store of value. Uh, and thus it's, it doesn't fit the definition of money and thus it's a scam or it's a Ponzi or it's tulips. Um, I think that what's missing from that analysis is that, okay, may, maybe that's true today, but can we envision a future where that's not, that's no longer true and that it has reached um, some sort of equilibrium state of adoption. And, you know, we can debate about where, where, what that adoption percentage would be, whether it's a hundred percent adoption or a niche 5% adoption, but nevertheless, at once it's reached its full adoption, wouldn't we expect that its value would be relatively stable? Um, and so to me, holders of last resort are really thinking about, all right, we have not reached equilibrium adoption yet and there's no way that i'm going to trade these bitcoins these um utxos on the utxo set for uh whatever is promised to me whether it's a uh, you know the next bitcoin or um a a a twitter scam yeah, no, these are fantastic points. I think, and, and you make a good point around, it's almost like a category error. People look at Bitcoin and they think that it should just be like a stock or a bond and it should have some kind of, you know, some kind of either dividend or capital gain and that's all that it could be. But I think that, you know, and the point that you've made there is that really they need to look at this like it's a potential new global money, which is a a special kind of good. It's not the same thing that will you know, throw off a dividend in the same way that gold doesn't throw off a dividend for you every year, right? Um, and I, I guess while we're on the topic of gold, some people have characterized Bitcoin as a kind of digital gold. And I know you've made comments on this in the past on Twitter. Uh, and I think you may basically you were making the, the point that it's 
directionally correct, but it's just an inadequate analogy to explain just how much better Bitcoin is. So could you elaborate on that? Yeah, uh, and it's it's really to, to no fault of anyone because historically, every time there's a new technology, um, the baseline is kind of what the previous one was. So, you know, you had horseless carriages uh, was the, the word for cars before, uh, which today sounds kind of absurd. So eventually, I think that uh, we'll, we'll talk about gold as being physical Bitcoins uh, rather than Bitcoin being digital gold. Um, but the, the, the reason the, um, the reason I really don't like the metaphor very much is that it, it undersells Bitcoin by a lot. Uh, and I think that, uh, it really, it, it's great for marketing to gold bugs and people who are already, uh, kind of interested in sound money, but in terms of capturing the full economics and also the um, inevitability of it, uh, I think it's inadequate. And the the inev- inevitability of it, I think, stems from the fact that with gold, gold had a good chance of doing a speculative attack against the dollar uh, during the late 1970s uh, when it had that massive run up. Uh, dollar, you know, the consumer price inflation in the U.S. was at 20 percent. And then Paul Volcker stepped in and essentially reestablished the U.S. dollar as a, uh, let's call it a quasi-sound money, uh, by letting interest rates uh, float to 20% and then having uh, the money supply being targeted. And that reestablished the credibility of the dollar's uh, monetary policy and essentially quashed any hopes we had of of gold doing a speculative attack on the dollar. Uh, And I think that you know, part of the credit goes to Volcker and the strength of the U.S. dollar, but part of the credit or the discredit goes to gold's uh, relatively high inflation in the sense that the higher the price of gold goes, the more gold gets mined, right? The, the, the more economical it becomes to uh, mine more gold, and thus you can produce more gold. Whereas with Bitcoin, with the difficulty adjustment every two weeks, you don't really have that effect, um, and so the when the price of Bitcoin is skyrocketing, it's not like the miners can produce you know twice as many bitcoins to fulfill this demand and kind of stabilize the market. Uh, yeah. And that's why I think that Bitcoin actually has a much higher chance, and frankly, an inevitable uh, outcome of uh, of destroying these fiat currencies. And um, so the digital gold meme. And same thing with kind of like the store of value, uh, you know, using that phrase uh, is good marketing. Uh, I I don't think that it captures the whole picture. Um, And maybe, you know, it's it's good to not capture the whole picture sometimes. Uh, Leave a little mystery. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think, um, you know, it's 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 out there for people to really take it and take it further than what we've gone before. Um, Okay. now, a lot of people complain about illegal use cases of Bitcoin. So, for example, judgment resistance, the nest egg for dictators, as you mentioned before, money laundering, the use of Bitcoin in you know crypto scamming like crypto lockers and so on, or those Twitter scam bots use in you know uh, you know drug markets and prostitution and porn and so on. Uh, do you have any comments on whether this will change? 
the adoption of Bitcoin as money or is it just really kind of neutral? And the fact that it can be used for anything is, you know, that's just a, that's just money. Yeah. I, I, the latter, I think these are just like epiphenomena of, of a, a money. Um, and from an investor's perspective, uh, there's kind of two ways to see it. One is that if Bitcoin is really good for all these nefarious activities, then that means that there's going to be, it's going to have value. And in fact, you could argue that Bitcoin bootstrapped itself off of the Silk Road. And that was like one of the major catalysts of creating demand for uh, Bitcoin. Um, now, uh, the other view, which also, you know, is credible, um, is that due to Bitcoin's permissionless system where anyone can be sending transactions pseudonymously, you know, with an internet connection, uh, it has attracted these illegal activities and thus governments are going to intervene and really crack down on it hard. So practically speaking, uh, I, I kind of approach it from a U.S. perspective because that's where I live. Uh, the government has been uh, very insistent on exchanges having KYC, AML, know your customer, anti-money laundering uh, controls so that uh, these illegal activities are choked off. And the problem is that that creates friction for people who want to buy Bitcoins you know, without revealing their identity, uh, which they might want to do, not because they're going to do anything illegal, but because they want to preserve their privacy and not, uh, you know, have someone burglarize their home because this person hacked the Coinbase customer database and, you know, found their home address and is now pointing a, a gun at their dog, you know, saying, uh, hand over your Bitcoins. So there's there's lots of legitimate reasons for not wanting uh, your, your, your identity to be attached to your Bitcoins. Um, but because Bitcoin has been used for nefarious activities, uh, governments have put in place regulations. And then at the extreme, governments have, have quote unquote, banned Bitcoin in their jurisdiction uh, out of a concern to, you know, mitigate illegal activities. Yeah, good points. Uh, interesting that you point out, you know, you've got to consider it from the US point of view. Um, but even still, as an investor, you have to consider at the global level because, you know, we've got jurisdictional competition, right? And what will happen is that some countries that are very permissive of Bitcoin will kind of attract a lot of capital. Uh, do you have any comments on that sort of global case for Bitcoin and the jurisdictional competition? Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I overhear things like uh, I've overheard that Malta is a, a friendly jurisdiction. Um, and then I, I saw a picture of one of the big exchange CEOs was visiting Bermuda and they seem to be friendly with them. So clearly there's jurisdictions that are going to be friendlier than others. But I don't think that there would be any jurisdiction that would say, OK, no KYC AML. Uh, you know, anything goes here uh, f for fiat on and off ramps, because ultimately, uh, if if that were to happen, the it would, first of all, it would get abused, right? Because you kind of have a uh, adverse selection bias where, uh, okay, now all of the fraudsters are using your jurisdiction. Um, 
And then that abuse would lead to whether it's SWIFT or the Federal Reserve or any of these uh, big fiat, uh, you know, payment system uh, uh, organizations would would shut off that jurisdiction. And we've seen them do that for other reasons to countries like Iran, uh, where they essentially cut them off from the world financial system uh, as a form of punishment or sanctions. And so there's there's only so much a jurisdiction can do. Now, I think that what's what's very promising is models where you you don't have a fiat on an off ramp, uh, and you essentially use uh, you know quote unquote stable coins or even just uh, sending Bitcoin. So, for example, Bitmex, like you cannot deposit fiat at Bitmex. You send your bitcoins there, and then they they. Uh, you you trade with uh, your bitcoins there, so that's a way of getting around these uh, onerous uh, financial legacy financial institution regulations. Um, but you know, people will debate whether that's good or bad. Yeah, sure, sure, agreed. Uh, let's go now into the sort of next steps on the path to the investment mainstreaming of Bitcoin. What we're now starting to see is large financial institution chief executives come out and comment on Bitcoin. We're seeing billionaires come out and comment on Bitcoin. Uh, let's start with one in particular, which I know you've commented on in the past, Lloyd Blankfein, who is the outgoing uh, chief executive of Goldman Sachs. Uh, do you want to comment a little bit on on what he said about Bitcoin? Yeah, so he really, he, he touched on, I think is, the most important thing to understand about money, which is that on some level, money is a, a, a social phenomenon. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's a social construct or, uh, a, a, you know, some, something that's like artificially created by humans out of thin air, um, because it's definitely grounded in, uh, well, for gold specifically, you know, in its chemistry and in its uh, properties uh, and its scarcity. Um, and then I think that fiat essentially is just piggybacking off of uh, and going off of the momentum of gold going into the 20th century. Uh, and Bitcoin has its own properties that we can get into. But at the end of the day, all these things are properties that are recognized by humans, by individuals. And the more individuals uh, agree on these properties uh, being uh, indicators of a good money, uh, the more participants you have in the monetary system and in, in the um, you know indirect exchange economy, Cadillacy, as the Austrians would say. So uh, what Lloyd recognized was that well, I, you know, I don't know, do I call him Mr. Blankfein? I don't know him on a first name basis, but. Uh, the, the the outgoing CEO of Goldman Sachs, he was saying that, um, you know, people were very resistant when money went from being gold to fiat. And, you know, the Austrians would argue, rightly so. Uh, and you could see the same thing of people being resistant going from fiat to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin specifically. Um, and that essentially, if if he were to have to explain how it happens. And, you know, he, he kind of uh, was very, um, he, he put up some disclosures, which is that he, he himself does not own any, Goldman doesn't own any, 
and he's not super excited about it. But if if looking back on it and, you know, if we're in a world where Bitcoin has taken over and he were asked to explain how, uh, it would be that people changed their the social consensus of what money is. Um, and so essentially, to the extent that once baseline properties have been established uh, to be a money, and I think that Bitcoin has established those, um, then it really is just a matter of human psychology and of uh, people agreeing uh, to to Bitcoin being their money. And, you know, Bitcoiners are, in, in my view, uh, if you were to draw like concentric circles, like a, a target for, you know, shooting arrows, like Bitcoin the holders of last resort are, are the kernel of that. And then you have concentric circles around that of, of people jumping in and uh, being convinced that Bitcoin's the future of money. And at, at the outer periphery of that, you have the, the no coiners. Uh, well, and now let's, let's be specific. When I say no coiners in this context, I do actually mean people who, who actually don't own any Bitcoins. Um, but uh, they're they're slowly gravitating, and you know, as Jay was pointing out in in your earlier podcast, that uh, their their mind has been captured, and so eventually they buy a little bit, you know, just for fun, just to see what the, all the hubbub is about, uh, and then the price goes up ten x, a hundred x, and now they've got a serious investment, uh, and they're adding to it. Um, so anyway, to go back to uh, the question about Lloyd, uh, wow, I, I was rambling there. Um, no, no, I, I think, think that's that, um, actually quite good. Go on. Yeah, we, we see this uh, process of social consensus uh, of accretion uh, happening, and the social consensus is getting louder and louder. And so right now, you know, I think Bill Miller is the biggest uh, Wall Street Bitcoin bull, uh, and he represents the, the vanguard of this trend. And I think that it's just the uh, tip of the spear at this point, but... We're going to see it more and more common where uh, on one hand you have people, I think the CEO of BlackRock was saying that none of his portfolio managers uh, thought anything of Bitcoin. And that's fine. Uh, they'll be the late adopters, but uh, the the gains will go to the early adopters. Uh, and we'll start seeing more and more portfolio managers saying that there's a role for Bitcoin uh, in a portfolio, you know, whether it's one percent or five percent or whatever it may be, um, but just part of it will be based on looking at the quantitative aspect of Bitcoin. And this, and the, I, I find it kind of silly, but there's actually a lot of truth to it, which is that if you just look at the historical returns of Bitcoin and their lack of correlation with other assets, um, and also just the very high Sharpe ratio, which is you know how much are you getting paid to to take on the volatility of uh, owning Bitcoins. Um, it's very attractive in that regard. And then on the qualitative level of looking at all of these investment theses and seeing, oh, well, you know, even if we don't think that Bitcoin is going to supplant all fiat currencies, uh, it's still, you know, judgment resistance is an interesting investment thesis or, um, you know, doing a high value settlement of payments uh, across borders, you know, whatever whatever rationalization they might have uh, to get them to invest a portion of their portfolio. Yeah, no, fantastic points. I think, yeah, you make great points there around the uncorrelated nature of Bitcoin versus other traditional assets. And also the sharp ratio comment that basically it's paying a very 
high return for the level of risk that you're taking on. And so some people view it almost like it's a positive expectation lottery ticket sort of bet. Um, Okay, so I think the next thing would be if you're a young person and you're interested in Bitcoin, what should you think about from a Bitcoin investment strategy point of view? Yeah, um, so I think that the first thing you've got to work on is uh, yourself. Uh, So I think that educating yourself, uh, whether it's about Bitcoin or about uh, finance or monetary economics, you know, if if you find that it, it, if you find it interesting, definitely dig into it. Uh, if if you don't find it interesting, um, then I think that you're going to have a really hard time understanding Bitcoin because it's in such uh, an early stage. And so I don't think that humans are actually uh, meant to cope with or reason about uh, the emergence of a new money. And uh, it's just it's so foreign to us because it's just never happened. You know, at some point, gold had a value of zero. Is that people thought of gold as being worthless? Uh, now, this might have been like Neanderthal days or before that. I, I, uh, I'm not an anthropologist. Uh, you know, maybe even anthropologists probably don't even know themselves. You'd have to like teleport or uh, time travel back to to the the first Cro-Magnon who picked up a gold nugget and saw that it shine a little bit and was like. I'm going to hold this <laughs> and uh, <laughs> someone's going to have to uh, barter with me uh, for me to give this up. Um, but anyway, so gold built up its value over centuries and millennia. And then Fiat kind of piggybacked off of gold. We've, we've, I, I haven't read of any uh, historical accounts of a Fiat money starting with a value of zero and, you know, accruing value from there. Uh, I think that's unheard of. Um, and, uh, Bitcoin comes in and it does have a value of zero and now it has a value, an ever changing value, but you know, it's, it's in the billions of dollars of, uh, total money supply. And I, it has done a number on people in the sense that it's, uh, I think it's caused a huge amount of misunderstanding about, first of all, why it has this value in the first place. Um, and then people wanting to replicate that phenomenon with, uh, you know, their their altcoin du jour. Uh, and so if you're young and coming into this, I think that you can learn a lot of uh, misinformation uh, and, uh, you know, learn, essentially learn the wrong lessons from Bitcoin uh, and get involved in things that either won't have lasting value or are just straight up scams uh, and, you know, are ultimately unfulfilling from the perspective of, of changing the direction of uh, mankind. So uh, my advice would be to, if you're not interested in monetary economics and you're going to only read one book about money, uh, it would probably be The Ethics of Money Production by Gita Holzman. And if you're not into reading... He has an excellent YouTube uh, video that's an hour long. And if an hour is too long, you can put it on 2x and listen to it in 30 minutes. And you'll uh, probably have to watch it twice because it's a lot of information to absorb. But uh, you'll have a fairly decent understanding of uh, what the monetary underpinnings of Bitcoin are, even though he doesn't say that Bitcoin 
word once. <laughs> um, but uh, that aside, I think the the next step for a young person would be to really think about whether they're interested in programming or not. Um, and so there I would go on codecademy.com and do a few tutorials and see, are you interested in programming? Uh, it's okay if you're not. There's a lot of other things to be done. But if you are, then you should, by all means, get uh, 100% involved in uh, software development and Bitcoin software development. And so uh, pick up a copy of Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, and you know, if, if you have the means or if you can get a scholarship to do a Jimmy Song's programming blockchain course, uh, that'll get your feet wet in the technical underpinnings of Bitcoin uh, and enable you to, whether you do it as a career or as a hobby, uh, get involved in, in Bitcoin programming. Um, now, from an investment perspective of straight up financially, I think that it's a very uh, difficult uh, area to be in because basically we have a lot of young people graduating from college with a lot of student loan debt. And traditional financial planning advice would be to pay off that student loan debt before you start making highly speculative investments. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And so if, if you want to, and the reason there's truth to it is because these, these student loans have like 8% interest rates on it, which means that if you pay off that student loan debt, that means that you're earning a risk-free 8%, which is pretty good in terms of traditional investments. Now, if you look at historical returns of Bitcoin, uh, you know, Bitcoin increases by hundreds of percents a year on average. Uh, but uh, how much can you rely on that and how much risk do you want to take on? If you're young, I would argue that you can take on a lot of risk. Now, if you're a little older and you have family and kids and uh, maybe have a little less risk. Uh, and so uh, there, I would argue that if you've got student loan debts, you know, pay off your student loan debts at a reasonable rate, at a reasonable pace, uh, and start accumulating some Bitcoins, um, but really focus on changing your lifestyle so that you're spending less and learning more. Uh, I think that if you're in your 20s, the most important thing you should be doing is learning, uh, and that'll enable you to have either a high-paying job or uh, have a start your own company, start your own venture. Um, but really, the, the, the two things are reduce your expenses and increase your income. Uh, and so it, those are the most important uh, pieces rather than on the investment side. I think that the investment side is really downstream of that. And so you've got to have savings to invest in the first place. Uh, and then you have a, a first class problem of figuring out where to put your money. Yep. Yep. Great points. Agreed with that. Uh, one other question that I thought would be good to get your thoughts on, and I get this view when I attend Bitcoin meetups, and sometimes there are altcoiners there. And basically, some of these altcoiners, they, they think of it like, oh, why would I buy Bitcoin when you know, Bitcoin might, you know, quote unquote, only do 2x or 5x or 10x from here. Whereas, you know, in a year, if I buy this altcoin, there's a chance that it could, you know, colloquially go to the moon, that kind of argument, obviously. Uh, now, I disagree with that as well. But I'm just curious, how, how would you uh, respond to that kind of view? How would you caution, 
you know, newcomers to crypto against kind of getting lost amongst all of the altcoin gambling? Yeah, so I, I think that the reason that we, we do hear that view is because there's some truth to it, which is that if you go on coinmarketcap.com and you look at the different altcoins, first of all, I mean, obviously there's some that have just pumped and uh, you know have massive gains, but there's also some that have sustainably uh, increased their value even in, in Bitcoin terms. So for example, if you look at Ethereum, if you bought Ethereum at the presale uh, and then held it to today, uh, you would have, you could convert it into more Bitcoins today uh, than you would have if you'd bought Bitcoins uh, at the presale. So clearly there, there's some truth to it. Now, obviously that's 100% hindsight bias and survivorship bias uh, because who knows how many other presales you would have invested in uh, and lost your shirt on. But uh, even that aside, I think that um, the they are right that Bitcoin has uh, less upside than it did in the past, uh, and that's just mathematically true. Now, I, I would argue that um, how much upside does one need in life? Uh, and Bitcoin still has a tremendous amount of upside going for it. Um, and it's also massively de-risked. Uh, and so if you look at it from kind of a risk-adjusted expected return, uh, Bitcoin still has a higher risk-adjusted expected return than uh, altcoins um, or any given one altcoin. Um, and then the other side, it, it, the other thing is that if you look at what, at equilibrium, you know, and part of the difficulty here is whether you're communicating with someone who is a, a day trader or uh, someone who is a long-term investor, because I, I think a, a day trader doesn't really care about what is the terminal value of Bitcoin at equilibrium, you know, when it's reached full adoption, you know, what's the total addressable market of Bitcoin? Like they don't care. They're, they're looking at uh, whether it's going to pump tomorrow or yesterday. Uh, so, but for the long-term investor, you have to think about uh, what, what is the total addressable market for this, uh, this investment? And so for Bitcoin, it's, it's, global it's it's uh, the global money and that's a total addressable market of you know however many billions of people there are today uh and then looking at all their portfolios and how much uh is held in cash and how much more would be held if uh bitcoin was cash or bitcoin was the global money um and so um that's a massive 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 addressable market now if you have an altcoin uh, that's Dentacoin that is for dentists, uh, that's a much smaller total addressable market. And here we're assuming that Dentacoin is wildly successful, right? And that every dentist uses Dentacoin. Uh, even that, just it wouldn't touch Bitcoin's uh, full potential. Uh, so I think that yeah, on, uh, in that regard, I mean, Dentacoin is kind of a silly example, but there's other ones, you know, like, uh, that, that market themselves as memes, essentially. So, for example, with Ethereum, you have to look at what's the total addressable market for smart contracts and for uh, token issuance. Now, you could argue that, oh, you know, that's everything's going to be tokenized and everything's going to be uh, on the blockchain. And then, all right, well, how much value does Ethereum itself, F, the, 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 uh, the money, ETH, the ticker symbol, how much does it accrue from that use case. Uh, 
And you could argue that if someone is using Ethereum just to issue their token and have an ERC-20 token on the Ethereum blockchain, well, uh, the the holding period for that would be very short, right? It's just the time that the 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 investor in the ERC-20 token buys Ethereum, sends it to this ICO promoter, and then the ICO promoter dumps it to you know buy a yacht or go on the beach or ideally pay for investors to develop the project. Um, and so that doesn't really seem like a very good uh, long-term investment uh, compared to Bitcoin uh, just because of the way it's marketing itself, but also the way that it is designed from an engineering perspective uh, in terms of its scalability and uh, its, its, uh, its decentralization. Fantastic points, Pierre. Really agree with that. Excellent answer. Um, okay, I think we're pretty much getting to the end of our time. I've got to let you go, Pierre. Um, but uh, look, guys, you can find Pierre on Twitter. His handle is at Pierre underscore Rochard. And he also runs BitcoinAdvisory.com. And also look up his podcast, Noted Podcast. Pierre, have you got any other projects or anywhere else that you would like the listeners to uh, find where they, you would like them to find you online? Uh, no, you listed them all. Um, I think that on, on all of the topics that uh, we were talking about, we could probably uh, dig into it for another few hours. So uh, I hope to be back on. Uh, and yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Pierre. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pierre Rochard. As usual, I will set up a show notes page on my website, stefanlevera.com. Search SLP3 for the links associated with this episode. Lastly, as this is a new podcast, I'd really appreciate if you guys can give this podcast a five-star rating on iTunes if you enjoyed it. Uh, Please share it with your friends, subscribe to the channel, and if you have any feedback, please come find me on Twitter. My handle is at Stefan Levera. Thanks, guys. See ya. Hey guys, welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, and my guest today is Pierre. Thanks for coming on, Pierre. Thanks for having me on again, Stefan. Excellent. Yeah, Pierre's one of my repeat guests. Uh, he's one of the best guys to follow in this space. He is, just for anyone who doesn't know him, he is a co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute and and also a co-host of the Noted Podcast, which is basically one of the top podcasts in this space. And he's also the founder of Bitcoin Advisory. And our theme for today is Bitcoin governance. So Pierre recently wrote some articles and has done some speeches and podcast appearances in relation to this. So obviously those will be in the show notes page. Um, So I suppose let's start with Bitcoin governance. Why do we care, Pierre? Uh, So I think that you've had some past guests on like Murad and uh, Saifedean that have really laid out the monetary economics of Bitcoin and why they matter and why they are good for the future of humanity, really. I mean, as a civilization, uh, maximizing the uh, capital accumulation and and wealth that we have. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, that that as a species is what's going to allow us to survive and get into space and uh, escape this, uh, this rock. But anyway, without getting too cosmic, uh, so governance is important. Bitcoin's governance is important because Bitcoin is important. Uh, and Bitcoin 
did not emerge from the mind of Satoshi as a, a perfect thing. Uh, and I think that that's widely recognized that there are improvements that can be made to the Bitcoin protocol. And so we have to uh, examine how are those changes to the protocol made? Uh, what do they affect? And um, what, how are they selected for uh, specifically? Yep, cool. And then who are the relevant parties to think about? So uh, I think that we could we could really go in order of their involvement. Um, so you've got researchers uh, and they are, you know, in academia or in industry or independent. Uh, and they're trying to think of ways to tweak the Bitcoin protocol to address either a problem that they've seen or to create a, a new feature that they're interested in in uh, seeing implemented on the Bitcoin protocol. Um, and then after that, uh, you, you have a process called the uh, Bitcoin Improvement Proposals. Um, and so there's different people involved at, at that point that are uh, looking at Bitcoin Improvement Proposals uh, and then merging them into the uh, BIP repository where those improvement proposals are kind of canonified. Um, and then you have people who implement these BIPs. Uh, they, since Bitcoin generally is, you know, has one reference implementation, and we can get into that later, but uh, the, the implementers are C++ developers. And so that's another constituency of uh, what's called Bitcoin core contributors. Um, and, and there's overlap over all these groups, right? Uh, and then you have uh, people who run a Bitcoin full node. And that ranges from someone who is running a Bitcoin full node without owning any Bitcoins, which we can talk about why that might be a little useless. Uh, but there's also on the other end of the spectrum, uh, large exchanges that are verifying uh, millions of dollars worth of Bitcoins uh, coming in and out uh, using their Bitcoin full node. Um, so then finally, we have the the miners. And the miners generally would be running a full node, but that's really actually only the mining pools, uh, pool operators that run a full node currently. Uh, and the miners themselves are just uh, running SHA-256 squared calculations. Uh, so... Uh, they they have a role to play in in the governance as well, and and we can debate about the extent of that role. Yeah, great, great summary of uh, the many moving pieces that are in play in the Bitcoin world. So one concept I've seen you talk about, and I think you do really well in explaining this, is you talk about this concept of network governance specifically as and not a minor democracy or not a kind of developer governance or benevolent dictator? What do you mean when you say network governance? Yeah, so uh, I think that explaining network governance kind of a, a necessitates explaining what it is that we are governing. And what what's being governed with Bitcoin's governance is the uh, block and transaction validation rules. And so this is a long set of different rules. Uh, some of them are minutiae that aren't particularly uh, interesting to people. Um, and others have uh, caused holy wars within Bitcoin. 
Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I have in mind, the, obviously, the block size limit, which, which is now the block weight limit. Um, and so that, that particular block validation rule um, has caused a huge amount of controversy. Uh, but there's a lot of other uh, different validation rules uh, that are uh, much less controversial. And so the, the definition of Bitcoin really is these, these rules. Because if you are not following these rules and you are creating an invalid transaction or an invalid uh, block, that invalid transaction and that invalid block will not be propagated, will not be communicated by other nodes that are following the rules. And so you immediately kind of get uh, sidelined by the network and you're no longer part of the Bitcoin network if you're not following those rules. Now, I think that the issue with with that explanation so that's that's network governance which is basically that if you do not follow the rules of the nodes on the network then you will get excluded from the network and you're you're um you know removed uh, but the, the the controversy is which network which set of validation rules do we call bitcoin and we saw last year and we're continuing to see it with Bitcoin Cash, where you have the, the BCH people who say, well, our set of validation rules is Bitcoin. And that is uh, their point of view. And then you have the BTC people who say, well, no, it's our set of validation rules and thus our network that is Bitcoin. And last year we had the SegWit uh well, you know, they 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 called it Segwit two X, but it's really just the two X part, right? Um, the the two X people, uh, led by Jeff Garzik, who were saying that now our set of validation rules is Bitcoin, and so it's kind of a it's an interesting uh, issue where there's no central authority that says uh, this. This set of validation rules is deemed to be Bitcoin, and everyone has to follow that. And if anyone disagrees, they're wrong. And if they insist, then you know we'll we'll throw them in jail or something. Uh, so there's there's no like there's no trademark. Uh, there's no um, and in fact there's it's very challenging to kind of think of a legal precedent uh, unless we kind of take a step back and think about it at a, a social level. Uh, and not just a, a technological level. And I think that at a social level, uh, what Bitcoin is, which set of validation rules Bitcoin is, uh, is kind of the same question of what what technical properties of a computer make a computer a laptop versus a desktop. And there's no there's a formal definition of it, right? Uh, and there, there, everyone can disagree. You know, you could say, well, uh, an iPad is a laptop, uh, or you could say that, hey, uh, a, 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 a the new iMac is a laptop because it's it's so compact and self contained. So uh, everyone can have these kinds of debates over uh, semantics. And at the end of the day, it's kind of what in it, when you're actually. Uh, engaging in commerce with someone else and you're actually exchanging value 
you're you're part of you know Cadillacy in, in Austrian terms. Um, what is it that you and your trading partner are agreeing on? And so, if you sell a a brick on eBay and you call it a laptop, and the person you're you're breaking that the the counterparty's expectations. They were expecting a laptop, and you mailed them a brick. Now, if if you can just go in front of a judge and say, "Well, look, Your Honor, uh, I I call bricks laptops, and uh, it's not really my problem that this other person doesn't share that same definition as I do, uh, because that's just my definition of a, of what a laptop is. It's it's a it's a cement brick, um, and so obviously a, a judge would say, well. Let's look at like what would a reasonable person, you know, consider a, a laptop to be, and that's kind of the legal standard of like what would a reasonable person uh, think, and that's that's grounded in a, a a social reality of what's called like intersubjective reality, which is that we have all these words to talk about things, uh, and we have to have some kind of bridge between those two, um, and. Otherwise, I mean, society completely falls apart if, if we don't have this, right? If we if we com- completely lose the ability to communicate meaning with each other, then uh, not only is commerce impossible, but e- even just any kind of social interaction it quickly devolves into being impossible. So, uh, the this let's bring it back to Bitcoin, right? So, if you were to sell BCH to someone and you say, "Oh, you know, I'm I'm selling you Bitcoin." Um, then it's kind of a question of how many other people agree with you that you sold that person Bitcoin uh, before it, it becomes a preponderance and it, it becomes, you know, what the reasonable person would expect. Uh, and that's deliberately, I think, I think, I mean, it's not deliberately unanswerable, but it it's inherently unanswerable. And that's a good thing. Otherwise, Bitcoin would be centralized, right? If, if there was one person who who said, hey, this is Bitcoin and this is not, um, then Bitcoin would be completely centralized and, and they could change the definition at a whim. Uh, so it's good that Bitcoin is an emergent social consensus among people, uh, but it's disorienting for folks who want to make changes to the validation rules of Bitcoin, uh, but ultimately are, are stifled by the um, difficulty of changing so many people, people's minds about what Bitcoin is and shifting what what I call or, you know, what I think is called a, a shelling point, and we can talk about kind of what a shelling point is if, if you'd like. Yeah, those are fantastic points. I, li- I really like the point you're making that it's really and it's there's parallels there with like Austrian economics and praxeology and this idea of intersubjective perception of value and what really what is what is the social consensus around that? Uh, so. Yeah, maybe it would be a good idea to then uh, go now into the process of governance. And then as we go through that, then we can talk about how that will help, you know, at what point people start to move that showing point. Um, so maybe uh, we'll start with that process of governance. So uh, in your article, you talk about uh, research. So do you want to outline a little bit around that? Yeah, so uh, there's there's a variety of of people, and I, I actually think that there's not enough people doing research uh, on, on the Bitcoin protocol. Um, but basically, the idea is that you would um, use your 
your your tacit and explicit knowledge about both Bitcoin, its properties, um, and your your vision for where you think it should go, uh, and have all of that coalesce into your ability to do research and um, run experiments, run simulations, and see, you know, what kind of changes do I want to make to the Bitcoin protocol? Um, so I think that there's there's not enough people doing that. Uh, part of it might just be like a uh, it's it's you know a public good. It's uh, there's there's not enough provided, huh? Yeah. But um, I actually, I mean, it's not that big of a problem from an economic point of view that there's not a lot of research going on because you kind of do want the protocol to uh, remain very stable and and not not changing willy nilly. Um, but uh, once once that, yeah, we, we and so one of the questions is like, well, what if people are researching the wrong things or not researching enough? Um, and I think that those are there are fair criticisms of uh, Bitcoin's governance at, at the research stage, um, especially because like if it's self-directed researchers who are not uh, employed by industry or by large hodlers, like they're they're just going to research what they're inherently intrinsically interested in, uh, and that might not necessarily align with what users are expecting to have researched. Yeah, fair points. Okay. And then, so the next stage you outline after research is a proposal. So uh, as you mentioned earlier with the BIP, uh, what are some of the forms that a Bitcoin proposal can take? Yeah, so I, I, I think that every single change to the Bitcoin protocol has been in the form of a BIP, um, you know, after, after BIP started, uh, which uh, was pretty early in the game. Um, but obviously, I mean, Satoshi was making changes willy nilly without putting out a uh, a proposal. And I, I actually I think that's an important thing to dig into, which is that um, Bitcoin's governance has been formalizing in a sense and maturing as Bitcoin itself has been maturing. And as the amount of value that is secured by the Bitcoin network has been increasing. So back in the day, like Satoshi could put out. Uh, a, a change to the Bitcoin protocol uh, and not really, you know, have much scrutiny made to it and it would just get merged and he would uh, release it out into the wild and people would run it without really questioning it. Um, now changes go through a lot of scrutiny and uh, this that scrutiny starts with the proposal. And so when they send an email to the Bitcoin dev mailing list, uh, they might link to a BIP um, Eventually, that that BIP will have a number assigned to it, uh, and that that BIP number is kind of what it'll colloquially be known as uh, as shorthand. Uh, and you'll you'll hear you know references to different BIP numbers, you know, one forty four, one forty two, or one forty or whatever, um, and or BIP one forty eight for UASF. Uh, so these um, these BIPs have no they're they're not binding in a sense right so uh they're more about trying to solicit feedback from people and seeing gauging what the level of interest is uh within the developer community about different changes and and it's also that they're they're written in in plain english now some of them have like more specification to them and the they may have some pseudocode in it but 
generally it's it's something that a, a the general public would be able to read and provide feedback if they're knowledgeable about Bitcoin's uh, protocol. Yeah, great points. Uh, I think, you know, Satoshi, naughty boy, not putting in a bit for all those changes he did. <laughs> um, yeah, but, although, I mean, he didn't really have a lot of people to communicate it with, right? And so... Yeah, no, might, exactly. Might I'm been, kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, but he, he did, he did uh, put out, like, forum posts uh, in the Bitcoin Talk forum, Um but yeah, it's just, it's a completely different world. Yeah, the process has just evolved and changed. And I think we've all been learning as we go in a sense of how, 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 what is the quote unquote correct way to make a, a change to Bitcoin? And then not just the small changes, but really the big consensus changes, uh, which are the ones that get more contentious. Uh, okay, so then let's say, you, you know, we've gone through research, we've gone through proposal. What's the next stage? So the next stage would be to, to to take that BIP and to actually write the code that would be uh, implementing that BIP, essentially. And that implementation would generally happen at a as kind of a pull request on the uh, Bitcoin Core repository on the reference implementation uh, written in C++. Uh, and if there's... Um, so there's a there's a process of code review around the uh, implementation, both of BIPs of changes to the protocol, but also of any any kind of change to uh, Bitcoin's uh, reference implementation. But the changes to the uh, protocol r- receive a much higher degree of scrutiny uh, than any of the other changes um, because. If there was to be a bug in a change to the protocol, then that bug essentially, I mean, either becomes part of the protocol or uh, could cause a loss of funds, could cause a chain split, um, could cause some real damage to Bitcoin if it were to slip by the reviewer's eyes. And so this is a very important uh, stage in the process where uh, at the end of the day, it's it's what's in the code that matters. It, it th- what's in the BIP is is irrelevant. People are not running the BIP. People are running the compiled code, um, and so having a, a level of quality assurance around that of of testing of uh, people really trying to trying to break it essentially and uh, deploying it on a test net and. Uh, trying to figure out ways where this will have unexpected results or cause uh, side effects that were, you know, unanticipated. So it's really, it's really hard to anticipate the unanticipated, but that's, that's what has to happen at the implementation stage. If, if we want to minimize and mitigate the risk of uh, a consensus change. Yeah. Great points. Um, And then are there, this one, we're sort of leaning towards this concept of can can Bitcoiners try to implement a certain tech and route around, so to speak, what the developers actually wanted? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think that there's uh, you'll often hear people say that the Bitcoin core developers or core contributors are gatekeepers um, because they they are the ones who control the uh, what's you know the reference implementations 
Git repository, and they're the ones who re- release the client, the node software that is widely seen as being the um, unofficial official, uh, you know, co- or uh, client or node software that should be run by everyone. Uh, and so there's an element of truth to that, obviously, in that uh, participants in the Bitcoin ecosystem are going to be very apprehensive about running other pieces of software. Uh, and part of the reason is that there's kind of a path dependency in that this this Git repository on GitHub, you know, Bitcoin slash Bitcoin, is in a sense the successor to Satoshi's code base and is kind of on um, on this path where it, it is the the descendant of Satoshi's code base and thus realistically has the lowest risk um, and, you know, as the more most battle tested uh, code base. Uh, but I think that 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 can be overstated. I think that it's more than just the fact that uh, this this Git repository and set of contributors has been around for a while. I think that it has a lot to do with the the Bitcoin Core project's philosophy as well, um, and their their competence. Frankly, uh, that they have been very good stewards of this code base and have released very reliable software over the years. Uh, so there's been some hiccups along the ways. Uh, you know, for example, the 0.7 to 0.8. Um, and, you know, I don't want to point fingers around that, but the people who were most directly responsible for that are, are no longer the project. Um, but <laughs> at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's on everyone, uh, to everyone involved with the Bitcoin Core project to be releasing the highest quality software possible. And that's why I think that there's such a strong culture of code review uh, in Bitcoin Core where you can have six, eight, ten people reviewing every line of code for a particularly important pull request. And um, that's the way it should be. And so I think that that's part of the reason why uh, the the quote unquote uh, reference implementation has so much credibility behind it is that it it has a very good engineering culture. Now, all that said, if someone wants to take all of that code, which is open source, right? It's it's all available for free, uh, as in beer and as in speech, uh, and you can copy paste all of that code. You can fork it in in, in the in the Git sense, not in the um, in the Bitcoin sense, but you you can clone that repository uh, and make your own little changes to the code, or or big changes, uh, and compile it and release it out to the public, and try to persuade people to run your code. Now, to persuade people to run your code and to run your your binaries, uh, you're you're going to have to demonstrate either that you have a, a track record that gives you some credibility in this, or you know you, you put out some very well thought through medium articles or, or uh, some very compelling tweets or wh- whatever it may be that that persuades people that, hey, you know what? Uh, not only am I and 
you know, I'm going to run this code and I'm, I'm going to rely on it and I'm going to use it to verify payments that I receive when I'm expecting to receive Bitcoins. And I expect other people to be running this code as well, because it is obviously superior to uh, the previous code that we were running. Uh, so that process of persuasion uh, can be very challenging if you don't have a track record of uh, not only contributing to uh, the existing uh, reference implementation, but also of having ideas about changes to the protocol that are just widely recognized as being compelling and also not being compelling to the reference implementation to the Bitcoin core contributors, right? Because the premise of, of the question here is that the someone has a change to Bitcoin, which the developers uh, find to be lacking, but that the public would find to be compelling. And I just, I, I think that that, scenario is is kind of far-fetched even though it's it's theoretically possible and and interesting um but the closest we got to it was with uasf last year bip 148 where essentially um shaolin fry who is a uh pseudonymous uh developer uh created a change to the bitcoin protocol rules where after a certain point, um, blocks that did not have SegWit enabled in them would not be accepted uh, by the node as valid blocks. And so if you were sending a payment to someone who is signaling UASF and UASF has activated, uh, that that payment wouldn't go through if, if you were incapable of getting it included in a block that was mined by a UASF miner by, or not, sorry, not by a UASF miner, a SegWit miner, um, which is, it's subtly different. Uh, and so that was seen by the Bitcoin core contributors as uh, if, if, if that were included in the reference implementation, that it would be disruptive to the ecosystem. And I think that they were right in having this concern and, Simultaneously, I think that the UASF uh, contingent were right in in asserting the sovereignty of the nodes over what gets included, what is a valid block, uh, because there's kind of this perception that hey, it's the miners that get to decide what a valid block is, and I, I think that's actually uh, a profoundly wrong reading of of how Bitcoin system works in practice. Now. Granted, you know, maybe that's not what was written in the in the white paper. We can we can debate that because there's language there that's debatable as well. Um, but uh, in practice, uh, Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin's the validity of Bitcoin blocks and transaction is set by people running nodes and accepting payments with them. Um, but anyway, I'm going kind of on a tangent here. Uh, yeah, so UASF was the situation where Shalin Fry copied the Bitcoin Core repository made the changes that he wanted to see made to that code and then released the binaries and persuaded such a large contingent of the Bitcoin ecosystem to run his code that the miners ultimately capitulated and uh, you know went along with Segwit. So it was kind of a um, a game of chicken of who who would who would uh, you know turn the wheel first but uh, ultimately, the the SegWit activation happened, 
uh, and there's lots of controversy around that, but uh, we can save that for another podcast. Okay, yeah, great points there around how there's a sense of path dependency, but also uh, a factor of competency of the team who are developing and coding into Bitcoin. Um, the, the next thing that I thought would be good for you to outline for the listeners would just be around the forms of signaling that are available. How, how can people signal which side or what, what they want? Uh, yeah, so I guess we could we could first point out that uh, there there is no good, and I'm, I'm let's well let's be more specific. There's no perfect way of signaling, um, and thus, in a sense, Bitcoin's consensus is a shelling point, which is a a focal point that uh, people agree on without ever communicating, and so the. The, the best example of it is uh, this question of if you are meeting a complete stranger in New York City and you have to figure out where where to meet them, where, where do you think that you would run into them and at what time? Uh, and so I, I, I don't know if you know the answer already, Stefan, do you? Yes, so I've I've heard uh, the uh, the example, which normally is twelve noon at Central Station, which makes great sense to me. Yeah, so it would be cheating if I asked you in earnest uh, <laughs> at what time, but or or where. But so yeah, that's exactly right. And the 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 point there is that like it's not that everyone shows up at Grand Central at noon. In fact. Um, I think that it's like 60 to 80% of people who do. But uh, it, it remains that that's kind of where the plurality of people show up. Uh, and that's based on kind of the topography of the map, right? Which is you know, when you think about, okay, what's kind of the, the, the best transportation hub in New York, Grand Central? Okay, and then we think about, well, what, 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 you know, what about the Statue of Liberty? All right, that's wildly inconvenient to get to. You know, the the person wouldn't be there. Um, or what about like the Empire State Building? Well, that's kind of out of your way as well. And uh, so all all these different options where you can kind of roll them out and you can determine. Well, you know, Grand Central, if you really think about it, is probably the best geographic location. And then in terms of the time, it's like, well, you know, noon is is, is kind of you know whether the person's a morning person or an evening person, we don't really know. Uh, everyone's awake at noon generally, <laughs> unless they really had a hard night out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, people are off for lunch. Uh, noon just kind of makes sense. Um, and so we can know these things without ever communicating with the other person. Right. Uh, and without ever telling them, Hey, look, what's your favorite place to meet in Manhattan or what's your favorite time to meet? Uh, and you just show up and there you are. So that's kind of a shelling point. And, I think that Bitcoin functions much in the same way. Now, a, a big part of it is back to this issue of path dependency, right? And so the the default place for us to meet is where we met yesterday. Uh, and so that's kind of what the consensus rules were when Satoshi put them in place. So that's what we have today is that the overwhelming majority of the existing block and transaction validation rules are what Satoshi made them on day zero uh, of Bitcoin. And we've kind of been on this path of, all right, we've, we're 500,000 blocks in. What are the validation rules for what Bitcoin is today? Uh, well, I mean, they're going to be the same that they were 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and 
to to change that shelling point is extremely difficult. And thank God, because if it wasn't, then we would have Keynesians, we would have inflationists, socialists, all, all sorts of people who want to change Bitcoin's monetary policy, uh, trying to shift that 21 million Bitcoin shelling point, uh, you know, any way possible. So it's good that it's hard to shift, uh, but it's 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 bad in the sense that if, if we're trying to make it so that Bitcoin, um, the base layer is improving and upgrading, then we've got to kind of herd a bunch of cats uh, because people are going to have all sorts of different ideas about how to change the the protocol that might be pulling in different directions um, or are just uh, pulling against the status quo. So you got to signal what changes to the Bitcoin protocol we want to make and what what shelling point are you going to be showing up at? And you can't really... So the way to do this is on social media, right? So you, you hashtag UASF or hashtag No2X. Uh, if No2X in, in that case was about you know staying on the existing shelling point and uh, it's, it's keeping the status quo. But UASF was about moving to a new shelling point of refusing to accept uh, non-segwit blocks. Um, and so these are these are imperfect forms of signaling due to what's called a Sybil attack, which is basically that someone could create a bunch of fake Twitter accounts or pay people on Twitter to to signal these things. Uh, and the, the countermeasure to a Sybil attack like this is, ironically enough, is having a web of trust. That is, having people that you know in your life, you know that they're intelligent people, you know that they actually do use Bitcoin, they actually own Bitcoin, they actually care about Bitcoin, you actually respect their opinion on Bitcoin and what Bitcoin is and what it stands for and what its future is, what its philosophy and its past is, all these really uh, soft you know, social aspects of Bitcoin, of, 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 of a Bitcoiner. You know, you, we, we each have our list of who we consider to be Bitcoiners and who we consider to be shitcoiners and who we consider to be no-coiners, right? And, and we have within those lists people we trust more or less for lack of a better word and it's it's the the paradox the irony of it is that we talk about bitcoin being a trustless system uh and wanting to maximize trustlessness but i actually i think that uh bitcoin is a a way of compartmentalizing trust and of really uh having trust be limited to the things that you want to trust people for uh, and then removing trust in a lot of other aspects of it. Uh, and in a sense, it actually kind of makes trust more important. Um, it, it shifts trust. It doesn't uh, remove it entirely in, in my mind. Um, but yeah, so if you have a web of trust and you know that, hey, I, I trust Stefan Lavera. Uh, I know that he controls this Twitter account. I've never met him in person, which is crazy to think about, but I've known you on Twitter since 2013. Um, So if you had a hashtag on your account about what kind of consensus change you want to see happen and what kind of software you're running and what kind of software you want to see other people running, um, 
that's going to have a lot more credibility than someone who just joined Twitter a month ago and has, you know, the default, uh, you know, Twitter bio and the Twitter and image. The egg. Yeah, the egg. And and they don't have any <laughs> tweets. They don't even follow me. You know, it's like, okay, why would why would this uh, account have any credibility? If I think the lesson there is if you're not following Pierre Rashad, are you even a Bitcoiner? Yeah, that's a valid question uh, at this point. But no, that you know, we'll give people the benefit of the doubt. There's there's folks out there who uh, haven't gotten around to hitting that follow button. So if that's one of you, uh, take a moment right now and uh, log on to Twitter and, and do that, um, and follow Stefan Levera too, obviously. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, so this this web of trust is kind of a way to mitigate the issue of um, being civil civil attack. Uh, now the the other signaling mechanism that people will talk about is minor signaling, and I actually I think minor signaling is even more problematic than Twitter hashtag signaling. Um, and the problem with minor signaling is that miners really don't have a strong view on what should be going on with the Bitcoin protocol itself. Um, what, what they care about is kind of the, the, the fiat value of Bitcoin, right? Which is that if the fiat value of Bitcoin is going up, uh, they're, they're paying their, their electricity costs out in fiat and, that creates a spread for them to uh, make a, a handsome profit on um, until, you know, obviously the hash rate goes up and the difficulty adjusts. Um, but the fiat value is completely disconnected from changes in Bitcoin's protocol. Uh, and I think that that's something that is very hard for people uh, to wrap their minds around because we, we kind of have this instinct of, well, if the Bitcoin protocol improves, then Bitcoin's price is going to go up, right? Uh, and I think that's really misguided. Yeah, it's not a one-to-one relationship, and it's it, it's sometimes leading and sometimes lagging. So, I, it, I would know, question not, whether yeah. there's I, I would question whether there's a relationship at all. Actually, uh, I think that the the relationship between Bitcoin's protocol and the price is the one, the monetary policy, right? The 21 million Bitcoins. And so that that has to do with the block header uh, verification rules. And so the block header has the, um, you know, the mining in it, right? The, the, the nonce and uh, all of that, uh, the, the difficulty and uh, how, many, uh, ha- how many Bitcoins are getting created in, in a block. Um, but uh, so that monetary policy... I think is kind of the the first driver of Bitcoin's price. Uh, the second one is the credibility of that monetary policy, and so that has to do with what we're discussing today, right? The the governance of of Bitcoin, uh, and so the the harder it is to change that twenty one million cap, uh, the the more credible Bitcoin's monetary policy is, uh, and that lends a lot of uh, confidence to investors. Uh, and then the last element of it, I think, is just how how much time has elapsed since Bitcoin's inception? Um, and I think those three combined form the fundamental value of Bitcoin around which the price oscillates based on the animal spirits of these insane speculators that are on BitMEX going 100x leverage, right? Uh, and that are 
piling in when the price is going up and really uh, momentum trading uh, and then freaking out and panic selling when, when the price is going down. Um, and you know, they're, they're trading on noise on, on news on epiphenomenon like that. But uh, really I think that, yeah, the, the monetary policy is what all of this oscillates around uh, and, and, and time, the, the Lindy effect. Um, if every day that Bitcoin continues to exist is another day that we can continue to expect it to exist. Um, yeah, yeah. So all that to say that I think that adding, you know, a new opcode to Bitcoin's, uh, Bitcoin's uh, consensus rules or or increasing the block weight limit or, you know, SegWit. Like, I don't think those those increase Bitcoin's price and I don't think that they increase Bitcoin's value. Um, so they're really they're they, they they occur because people have an itch to scratch. Um, and that might be that they they want to use Bitcoin uh as a uh, you know settlement layer or as a payments layer, uh, and so that's why they're going in and making these changes to the consensus rules. But I don't think that it changes Bitcoin on, on a monetary level and on an investment level. Uh, it, yeah. it you know it, it helps on a payments level. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Okay, well, I think the, while we're on this topic of the shelling point, do you have any comments on? what parts of Bitcoin would be very, very difficult to change or almost impossible? And what other parts of Bitcoin are more amenable to change? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, I think there's a long list of entirely non-controversial changes that could happen, uh, even in a hard fork. Um, and really the controversy is about the hard fork itself, not the changes themselves. Um, but, you know, th- things like... Um, we can actually we can look at past changes to uh, to Bitcoin's validation rules and see what what shelling points are very easy to shift. And so I think that um, transaction formats, you know, like SegWit, like that was probably the most controversial change that's happened in the history of Bitcoin, uh, which was, uh, you know, re- removing signatures, uh, but also just changing signatures. So right now. Uh, we're using ECDSA. Uh, there's a proposal or there's, I don't know if it, uh, yeah. So I think there's a BIP now. Yeah, that's right. There was recently a BIP made for changing to Schnorr. And right now it seems like a shoe in but I would really caution, and I, I, I might start harping on this on Twitter soon. I, I think that there's needs to be more input from a wider range of people especially cryptographers on what what bitcoin's signature uh sh- you know scheme should be and uh right now we have peter willa uh, you know who's associated with blockstream and uh, he's kind of the main driving force behind schnorr and uh there's a, there's a lot of other people who agree with him uh and i th- i think that there's no harm in having more people uh, vocalizing either their opposition or their support to Schnorr. Uh, what what I would not want is that um, Schnorr kind of gets decided on um, by default uh, rather than by a strong process of deliberation and then rough consensus. Uh, so it seems that that's going to be uncontroversial. 
but I want there to be more controversy about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and then you can on the other end of the spectrum, you have things like changing the uh, block reward, so increasing the block size limit beyond twenty one million, and having like a continuous inflation rate, like that hugely hugely controversial and in my mind basically inconceivable at this point i i don't there there are people who are debating the long-term security of bitcoin without having if there is no inflation and we're entirely reliant on transaction fees i i think that debate is worth having and it's interesting but i at the end of the day i don't think that it actually will uh uh, lead to a, an increase in in Bitcoin's uh, hard cap, and um, I would be very disappointed if it did. And so, the only reason that I think the twenty one million hard cap would be changed is if there was a a serious uh, serious security issue around it. Uh, and I I don't think that even even the 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 people who are saying that there is a problem with the hard cap, I don't think that the 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 arguments that they're coming up with are compelling enough to, to say that it's a security, a serious security, security issue. Uh, I think that what they're pointing out is kind of an inconvenience, not a security issue, which is that you, we're going to have to wait for a lot of confirmations um, in the future. And so to have the same level of finality that we have with six confirmations today, maybe we'll need 60 or 600 or 6,000 confirmations in the future. Um, but that's not, I, I don't think that's a reason to, to change the 21 million hard cap. Um, now, so in between those two extremes, we have um, changing the block weight limit. And I've seen people argue that we can do that with a soft fork. I've seen people argue that that's only doable with a hard fork. Uh, in either direction, it's controversial. The reason it's controversial is, is very similar to the reason that the block size limit debate was highly controversial before SegWit, which is that um, the full nodes maintain a full history of the Bitcoin blockchain. And in order to have a, a UTXO set that is kind of um, fully validated in that they've looked at every single block since the Genesis block, and that's what has formed this UTXO set that is the, the record of who owns what Bitcoins, uh, which, I mean, frankly, is like the most important thing in Bitcoin, right? The UTXO set. Um, you have to download every single block in the history of Bitcoin and then run it as, a, you know, a change to the UTXO set and validate everything associated with it, all the transactions, all the inputs and the outputs and you know, the, the block header and whatnot. So all of this, all of this overhead uh, is put onto nodes and nodes are not compensated for this. So essentially, it's kind of a negative externality. Um, the reason that people run full nodes is so that they can verify payments that they personally are receiving uh, and to verify that essentially that their, their one Bitcoin is one out of 21 million Bitcoins and not one out of 26 million or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, they can make sure that they're on the right consensus. And anyway... Uh, all this to say that it, a change to the block weight limit would be controversial because you're you're increasing the negative externality, uh, and you're also changing the economics of Bitcoin in the sense of uh, if we're concerned about 
the Bitcoin hash rate at equilibrium in the future, then we should be concerned about how do we maximize minor revenue? And the way to maximize minor revenue is to create artificial block uh, space scarcity uh, so that we can have a good competitive fee market um, and increasing block supply uh, affects that that market. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Okay. Um, so I think that sort of is a good uh, discussion around deployment. How about now enforcement? So I've seen um, some, one good way I've heard of putting it is uh, one of the guys on Twitter, Stop and Decrypt, one of his articles, he talks about Bitcoin as an impenetrable fortress of validation. Uh, so Pierre, how are changes enforced in Bitcoin? Uh, I hope you have Stop and Decrypt on your podcast uh, soon because he is uh, quite prolific on, on Medium. He's uh, written some really good articles. Um, so I think that I, I, I did touch upon it earlier in the episode of essentially if someone is transmitting an invalid uh, transaction or block, then they get disconnected from the network. And that's what that's what makes it an in- impenetrable fortress of validation. Um, but in terms of, uh, I mean, with the deployment, you know, you got to make sure that everyone's running the, the same consensus code that you're expecting them to run. Uh, and with the enforcement part, what it comes down to is if you are, if you are selling a good or a service, or let's say you're selling your fiat for Bitcoins and you want to receive Bitcoins, you you have to choose what is my definition of Bitcoin. So if you're a Bcasher, your definition of Bitcoin, BCH, uh, you know you're going to go download that that node software. But uh, if you're thinking that you want to you want to stick to the current shelling point of Bitcoin BTC, then you got to go download the reference implementation or other implementations that are currently compatible with the reference implementation. Now, with caveat that maybe maybe run both the reference implementation and an alternative implementation just to make sure that you're you're in consensus. Um, and then th- that person is going to create the person that is selling bitcoins to you is going to create a Bitcoin transaction for you, and they're going to uh, broadcast it to the Bitcoin network. And your node as part of the Bitcoin network is going to eventually receive that transaction that's being broadcast. Uh, and if if you determine it to be valid, then it will be added to your mempool and it will appear in your wallet as having been seen as an unconfirmed transaction. So at that point, that's how you have enforced a definition of Bitcoin, which is that if that person had sent you an invalid transaction... You would never see it in your mempool and you would never see it in your wallet, which is attached to your full node. Uh, And thus, you would never recognize that that person had sent you Bitcoins and you would be on the phone with them asking them, where are my Bitcoins? (laughs) Right. So you have you have enforced the Bitcoin protocol uh, by 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 your actions and by delegating your actions to your node and automating them with your node. Now, eventually, you would want to make sure that uh, that transaction gets included in a valid block. So uh, a minor 
if they are running the same consensus rules of Bitcoin, a Bitcoin miner. Uh, now, granted, I say you know a Bitcoin miner, but if they're mining SHA two fifty six squared, they don't really care like what consensus rules they're mining. Is uh, you know they they want to get paid and whatever is profitable to mine at that point in time is what they'll mine. Uh, but setting aside that, um, they they will include that uh, transaction in a a block. Uh, that then that block will get broadcasted to the Bitcoin network. And your node as part of the Bitcoin network will eventually receive that block. And your node will verify that that block, the block header, uh, has the correct proof of work in it. And the uh, contents of the block um, are all valid as well. All the transactions in it are valid. Uh, and the, you know, the the Merkle tree is is all valid and all that. And and that your transaction is one of those block or, or one of those transactions in the block, um, and at that point you can say with some confidence that not only do I own bitcoins, but uh, there is some finality to the transaction that was uh, broadcasted to me, uh, and the, your confidence in that finality uh, only increases as new blocks come in. You validate them; they're bitcoin blocks. You add them. And the depth uh, at which your transaction is in the blockchain uh, continues to increase. And, you know, people have different rules of thumbs of what depth they consider to be safe. Uh, but, you know, it can be from two to six. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. And that's a good articulation as well of, let's say I liked one particular side of a fork and I didn't want the other. Well, that is how, you know, running that node is how I can ensure that I stay on the chain or the side that I want to stay on. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think now now that we've sort of run through the process of, you know, Bitcoin governance, with the full benefit of hindsight, let's, you know, just uh, I'm curious to get your comment or, you know, sort of post-mortem on some of the failed changes in Bitcoin's history. So, you know, what did they do wrong? And one example that might be, it could be that they did not build consensus before attempting to fork. Do you have any comments? Yeah, although, I mean, I think that, you know, if you if you try to build consensus before you fork and you fail, but you really want to fork and you think that after you forked that people will eventually recognize the superiority of your consensus, uh, then you really have no choice but to just go ahead and do it. Um, now, as I was saying, like I don't think that Bitcoin's value comes from, uh, you know, making changes to the protocol itself. So I don't think that uh, that would ultimately result in success. And as we see with the the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, uh, where it, it's it's really it hasn't its trading has not broken out any higher than it, it, you know what it was at uh, the beginning. And it reflects the, you know, 10% of Bitcoiners ended up and that's, that's being very generous, 10%, but it's probably less than that. Um, yeah. Ended up going to uh, the Bitcoin cash side of the hard fork. Um, but I th- there in terms of like, okay, you know, this person, you know, Gavin Andreessen and Mike Hearn and, and Jeff Garzik, they all failed to gather consensus on their changes. And, and you know, let's let's not take that as a given. Let's look at why, why is it that they failed? Um, is it 
because of the changes themselves, right? The the substance of the consensus changes. I think that's certainly a, an element of it. Um, I think that it it would have uh, gone perhaps a lot more smoothly if the increases to the block size limit and in in Jeff Garzik's instance, the block weight limit, if if those changes had been uh, at the margin rather than a doubling then or a quadrupling or you know like i think that uh, that uh gavin wanted to go to 32 megabyte blocks like crazy stuff but anyway um those changes are just much too radical like i i don't think that they had a chance on their merits uh from the beginning uh so i think that if they had uh done a marginal thing where it's like we're going to increase the block size limit or the block weight limit by let's say 50 kilobytes a month or a quarter then you know that's uh that's something that maybe would have gathered a lot more consensus uh around um so setting aside the substance of it then we can kind of get into the the communication strategy of it um so basically they were they were not they didn't get a lot of traction with the Bitcoin core developers. Uh, and so they took it to the public uh, and Gavin wrote some blog posts um, about increasing the block size limit at the time. And, you know, they, they circulated around, they were uh, posted on Reddit and they, they were widely read. Uh, they were widely discussed and ultimately they were unpersuasive. I think that, the Gavin did not uh, engage in the rebuttals to his arguments. Uh, they Gavin was um, either out of just incompetence on his part or maliciousness, uh, creating uh, straw man arguments and not steel manning his opponents. And so I think that that in, reduces your credibility uh, and reduces the credibility of, of the consensus change that you're advocating for. Um, which is unfair. Like I think that the in, the arguments for increasing the block size limit uh, pre-segwit and then increasing the block size block weight limit post-segwit and to this day, there are very good arguments for doing it, and they, in my view, have not had uh, justice done to them by their proponents, uh, and it's kind of a shame because, you know. The, the strongest argument against uh, increasing the block size limit and the block weight limit is that we need to break this expectation that transactions on Bitcoin are free or clo- or or of a negligible cost uh, and start attaching a, a cost to them because eventually we're going to hit a, a block weight limit or a block... Or, well, yeah, let's call it a block weight limit at this point uh, that does reduce uh, decentralization and does so dramatically increase the run the cost of running a full node uh, that decentralization is impaired. Um, and you know that that might not be at the the limit that we're currently at of eight million weight units. Um, but we're not that far from it. And so why not break that expectation now and once people have it firmly in mind that no, look, transacting on chain with Bitcoin um, has 
has consequences to it uh, and has a cost attached to it. And uh, as the transactor, you will uh, bear a significant amount of that cost, you know, as, as kind of a proxy uh, to, to, you know, it's, it's not like the transaction fees go to the nodes, but it certainly, it works as a deterrent for, you know, mindless consumption of block space. Um, so I think that Gavin and, uh, and Mike Kern and, and Jeff Garzik could have put forth a, a really good, solid case of, look, we agree that we cannot continue to increase uh, block space consumption indefinitely. Uh, but, uh, and we agree that we're going to have to break user expectations eventually and that every business can't be, you know, validating or, or sorry, every business can't be, uh, you know, Visa on the blockchain. And, you know, we're not, we're not going to scale up to Visa and, and that's okay. But at this point in time, uh, it is sensible that we would bump the block size limit a little bit and uh, kind of, yeah, it's kicking down the candidate down the road, um, but it's, it's the prudent thing to do. And, and we'll, we'll develop layer two over time and it's already in the works and uh, that'll be great when it happens. But in the meantime, like let's, let's buy ourselves a little breathing room. Uh, and I don't think that they made that argument particularly well. Yeah, I see. Yeah, no, I, those are good points as well. Okay, uh, let's now contrast Bitcoin's network governance versus other you know, blockchain governance. Uh, there was an interesting statement I saw by Nick Zabo, and he was saying blockchain governance generally comes in three varieties. One, Lord of the Flies. Two, lawyers. Or three, ruthlessly minimized. Uh, how would you uh, fit Bitcoin into that category and maybe compare it against some of the other alternatives? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that in, in, in this framework, it definitely fits on number three of ruthlessly minimized. And basically... In terms of uh, minimizing the, um, and I, I would I would almost characterize it as a attack surface, uh, which is that people can use governance decisions to attack Bitcoin's consensus, and I would argue that's what happened with the block size limit. Um, but how you minimize that attack surface, how you how you minimize the scope that governance has to deal with is that you minimize the um, set of validation rules that form the consensus, right? The, the, the set of op codes, uh, the set of different uh, denial of service uh, countermeasures, whether it's SIG ops or the uh, block size limit, um, the, the set of block header uh, verification rules. And so there you could say like, like the biggest can of worms you could open and the biggest maximization of uh, governance that you could do would be to say, oh, you know what? We're going to have on-chain minor signaling for how many Bitcoins get created with each block, right? Like, all right, <laughs> now, now we have the FOMC. We've got, we've got a central banking monetary policy uh lord of the flies situation with with bitcoin's monetary policy like that would be the 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 ruthlessly maximizing the attack surface of governance 
Um, so I'm using that kind of as a as a reductio ad absurdum of, uh, and so I think Bitcoin does a really good job of uh, ruthlessly minimizing the uh, validation rules that uh, are being governed, uh, and you can put Ethereum on the opposite end of the spectrum of we are running a what was a I don't know if it's still a Turing complete world computer where there's basically an unbounded number of uh, verification rules of governance, uh, you know, attack surface. And not only that, but it, that's kind of on a technical level, on a social level, uh, we have an unbounded set of expectations from users. Of um, Yeah, I mean, people want to have health records on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, but they also want to do uh, decentralized betting on Augur. They want to do, uh, you know, ICOs. They want to do DAOs. And what we saw with the DAO hack was that there are negative externalities from all of these different uh, user expectations that spill over onto the consensus rules, where essentially... You're having to uh, adjudicate disputes that emanate from people using your blockchain for non-payment, non-monetary use cases, um, and the what you know now. So you know, I was talking about Bitcoin improvement proposals. There's Ethereum improvement proposals, and so you have Ethereum improvement proposals relating to the monetary policy. You have them relating to fixing uh, people who have created smart contracts. Well, I call them smart contracts, but, you know, they're pretty stupid. Uh, stupid contracts uh, that cause their funds to get stuck. And the only way to unstuck them is with hard fork. Uh, and now you, you have developers that are, you know, the judge, jury, prosecution, and defense of all these uh, uh, these issues that are really are, are 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 oh and you know what I it's really unfair that I put Ethereum as the uh, the opposite of Bitcoin because there are worse than Ethereum. There's EOS yes. and there's Ripple uh, and you know Ripple like has the ability to freeze XRP uh, because Ripple is like a centralized system. And they have to conform with uh, anti-money laundering uh, statutes here in the United States. And so if XRP needs to get frozen, uh, then Ripple needs to comply with that. Um, and, and then with EOS, they, they wrote a constitution, like in a Word document. So there it's like they're, they're, they're trying to LARP, you know, they're, they're role playing as lawyers, uh, as the founding fathers of, of this governance system. And, and then you have people saying, well, you know what? Um, people are creating Ponzi schemes on EOS and it's giving us a bad name. We should ban Ponzi schemes and we should seize their funds and give them back to the people who entered the Ponzi scheme. So at that point, you've basically recreated uh, you know, the, the existing financial system uh, in a ad hoc uh, Lord of the Flies slash uh, fake lawyers uh, scenario. 
<laughs> Excellent answer, Pierre. I loved it. Excellent. Um, yeah, just a great summary of uh, the distinction between how Bitcoin works and how every other coin basically works. Uh, okay, so Bitcoin has changed and it's morphed over time. The, you know, there are things that we have. There are there are developments that happened that were that were just not described in the white paper. Do do you have any examples of that? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, actually I would go check out David Harding. He has like a errata page on the white paper, basically detailing a lot of things that were either um, inaccurate in the white paper or have changed since the white paper, um, or uh, we've we've learned more things since the white paper. I think that what, something to keep in mind. Uh, I, my first point on this issue is that. Uh, Satoshi wrote the code before writing the white paper. And this is kind of like a little known fact. Uh, And so we can kind of glean from that that the white paper is just a description of the software he wrote, a high level, very high level, and not entirely accurate and not fully specified. Like he doesn't say in the white paper, oh, there's only 21 million Bitcoins. And in fact, the 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 first um you know release of bitcoin while while satoshi intended for there to only be 21 million bitcoins the code that he implemented that uh in was was not that uh it's uh, at the end of the creation of new bitcoins it resets and um uh, peter Wolle had to create a bip that addressed this bug as a soft fork uh to change Bitcoin's validation block validation rules so that we don't have more than 21 million Bitcoins getting created. So already we can see that, first of all, the white paper is not a specification and is just a a, a communication tool, really, of uh, him trying to... Because it's, it's very hard to put on a mailing list. Here's all this code I wrote. You guys have to go read through it now to understand what I did. You know, like that's kind of putting the burden on the reader. Uh, but Satoshi wrote a high-level description of his solving the double spending problem with proof of work. Um, and that's that's kind of what our expectation of the white paper should be. We shouldn't try to expect more from the white paper than that. Uh, what we should expect, what what we should expect from is is the source code. And and then the second point is that that source code has evolved a lot and the network has evolved a lot. And the reason that the network has evolved beyond what Satoshi described is that it's decentralized. So if Bitcoin was centralized, then yeah, it would be easy to set it in stone and make sure it never changes. But because Bitcoin is decentralized, there's nothing stopping Bitcoiners from having Bitcoin evolve into something other than what Satoshi envisioned. And that's okay. Like, I don't think that we should manacle and shackle ourselves to what we think Satoshi's vision was, right? Uh, because he's he's not around to tell us whether we're correct about uh, our um, reading into what he wrote. Uh, and we don't know that Satoshi wouldn't have changed his mind about things as they evolved. So it, it's, it's, it's wild to suggest that Satoshi had a... Uh, foresight and he's a soothsayer and he can predict the future and and satoshi said that this will be bitcoin and thus 
you know, he he would never have changed his mind and he would never have um, updated the, the code or something like that. It's like it's bizarre to see people saying this. And it's 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 the craziest form of worship in my mind, um, the, the kind of uncritical uh, assumption. And and then it's it's all also utter pure hypocrisy in the sense that a lot of the people promoting this point of view of Satoshi as a, uh, a soothsayer and a, a visionary is that, uh, they, they, they are, they are in the Bitcoin cash camp and Bitcoin cash is not only hard forked to increase the block size limit back to where it was before Satoshi implemented the one megabyte limit. Um, but they've also, uh, you know, made other changes to the validation rules that Satoshi didn't envision either um, and have added back opcodes that Satoshi had removed and want to add new opcodes that Satoshi did not uh, predict would happen. So um, it's kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't think that there is, uh, well, so the only implementation that truly follows Satoshi's vision is the one that he released back in 2009. Uh, and no one runs that anymore. So I think that we should kind of accept that uh, things have moved on since. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I mean, there's obviously, I will link that uh, David Harding page. It's a great page. I think it's called Bitcoin Errata. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely link that. And uh, there's definitely a lot of um, a lot of things that have changed. So there were many things that were not described in the white paper. So multi-sig mining coins, the 21 million coin cap, uh, AS- ASIC mining, 10-minute block times, HD address generation, um, a bunch of things. And then th- another tweet I saw was explaining what the white paper actually got wrong. So the security model, uh, Moore's law is not reliable. The longest chain is not secure. The SPV, aka uh, the fraud proofs or alerts, this concept of one CPU, one vote. So, yeah, I think you've outlined a lot of great points around why Bitcoin has changed and it it, it necessarily must change because it is decentralized. Uh, I, I think okay, that, well, I think, yeah, go on. Yeah, uh, the, the most important one in, in my mind, uh, at least politically, that you listed there is, is the SPV security, which is that... Um, SPV currently in Bitcoin is like profoundly broken uh, from both a security and privacy perspective. And uh, I think that right now, the, the, the only trustless way to use Bitcoin is to run a fully validating node. Uh, and so I think that if, if Satoshi were around, uh, he would probably agree with that assertion. And there's a lot more work that needs to go into SPV uh, before we can say that it is... Uh, as secure or as trustless as running a full node. I mean, not that I don't think that it will ever be as trustless, but at least approaching that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, 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 those are good points as well. Uh, okay. So I think, um, have you got any other points that you wanted to make at this point, Pierre? We might start wrapping up. So just any final comments on Bitcoin governance? Um, yeah. I, I, I want to see, I want to see more Bitcoin core contributors. Um, and I want to see more, uh, players in the ecosystem, uh, forming their own teams of Bitcoin core contributors. So like, you've got like the chain code labs guys who are doing a fantastic job. You've got Blockstream guys who are doing a fantastic job. You've got independent contributors here and there, you know, uh, 
Jim Poston at Coinbase done a fantastic job. Uh, you got Schwartz Provost at uh, blockchain.com. Uh, Excellent. I want to see more. I, and I, I think that um, there is definitely room for a, a huge increase of Bitcoin core contributors, uh, both from people who are looking at the Bitcoin protocol itself um, and who are making improvements to the reference implementation, modernizing the code, refactoring it, reviewing pull requests with a very close eye, uh, improving the test framework for Bitcoin Core, um, improving the tooling around it, uh, indexing you know, addresses, uh, you know, all, all these different um, things that it's, I, I, it's fantastic what, what the current set of contributors is doing. And we're getting lots of new contributors all the time. Um, but I really think that it's not like we're at a saturation point. I, I don't think that there's too many cooks in the kitchen at all. Um, and if you look at the Linux kernel, there, there's kind of, you know, it started out with just Linus Torvalds in the 90s, or I think it might have been the late 80s, early 90s. But um, it, it grew and grew and grew. And now you have hyper-specialized kernel developers who are very focused on one specific part of the kernel. And because the code base is highly modular, uh, they they don't actually have to you know worry about the rest of the code base. And I, I'd like to see the same with uh, the reference implementation, where we can have dozens of regular contributors um, that are uh, working on their own parts of the code base, and there's all of these changes roll up the uh, the, the 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 chain of maintainers, uh, so that there's kind of a, a coherent um, you know, code style and all of this, but yeah, I, there's, there's just more resources that can go into Bitcoin core development. Um, and I'm, I'm disappointed when I hear people, uh, complain about the direction of Bitcoin core or, uh, complain about the, um, perceived power of, uh, certain Bitcoin core contributors, because I really think it's just a matter of stepping up and, um, the sooner you step up and start contributing, the better, because you start building a reputation and that reputation then will allow you to make more and more substantive changes to the code base until finally, you know, you're, you're the one proposing a soft fork or, um, God forbid the day happens a, a hard fork <laughs> and, uh-huh. um, you, you have the clout and the reputation and the credibility to actually be taken seriously. And so, yeah, I, I just want to see more Bitcoin Core contributors. I think that's that's the 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 most the healthiest thing we could see for Bitcoin's governance today. Yeah, fantastic. Agreed with that. Okay, guys. So you can find Pierre on Twitter at Pierre underscore Rochard. Definitely, if you're not already subscribed, look up his podcast that he co-hosts with Michael Goldstein. Look up Noted Podcast, and you can find the website for that. I think it's noted.org, right? That's correct. Yes, N O D E D. Yep. And also check out his uh, site and company Bitcoin Advisory. Uh, yeah. So, the, so uh, thanks very much, Pierre, and uh, appreciate your coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Okay, guys. So that was the episode with Pierre, and that is SLP11. So if you go on my website, stefanlevera.com, you can find the show notes for that. Um, if you want to just, if you got value out of this, remember to subscribe to the podcast, Stefan Levera podcast on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. 
Um, just, yeah, subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. Any feedback, come and find me on Twitter at Stefan Levera. That's it for me, guys, and I'll speak to you next time.